Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Midwatch. As usual, I just want to say that this podcast is brought to you by Bravo Zulu Co. Bravo Zulu Co. is a uh, naval-based clothing company, um, but we're also more than that. We like to promote positive uh, thinking, dedication, and just overall doing good in anything that you do in your life and going out every day and earning that BZ. On this episode of the podcast, we have a very, very special guest uh, by the name of John O'Hara. I served with John uh, at my last command for about six, seven months before he uh, was transferred and went on to another assignment. Um, But he has served in the military uh, close to 20 years, and he actually enlisted a couple months before 9-11, and he was involved in some of the uh, biggest um, battles during the Iraq War, uh, Ramadi and Fallujah, and he was also part of the initial push into Iraq. So it was a great podcast, uh, great insight into some of those battles and and the mindset of the military kind of during that 9-11 time and and the initial push into Iraq. Uh, He's stationed on like the other side of the world right now, so we had some kind of uh, connectivity issues in the beginning of the podcast. Some of the vocals were kind of choppy. Um, I please ask that you guys just kind of bear through that. Uh, Towards the end, it does get a lot better. Um, but it, it was just a very, very good podcast, uh, great insight into the war um, and, and into some of the, the battles and experiences that he had. So uh, I really hope you guys um, enjoy this podcast as much as I did and um, enjoy. So, yeah, so I, I have like two reasons for starting the podcast. So, like, my one reason is like selfishly, like I suck at talking to people, like I, I suck at like communicating. So it's like it's a way to force me to like get better at that. And then, like, my second less selfish reason is, like, I feel that it's, like, so easy to to document shit nowadays. Like, I don't need, or we don't need the Discovery Channel or the History Channel to do, like, a, a, a war documentary. Like, I can call you on Skype and hit the record button, and I can make my own, like, documentary of your combat stories that I, I think deserve to get heard that, you know may may have never been heard if we didn't have the abilities of like the of technology that we have nowadays you know what i mean so that's like yeah that's like my real reason of wanting to do it is just kind of getting because i mean like we, you know we know like the the dakota myers and things like that i mean and and rightfully show like i mean they earn the medal of honor for a reason or or were awarded the medal of honor for a reason but there's still so many more stories out there you know what i mean that may never have been heard um so i feel like i need like i should do my part as an American to, to kind of get these things documented. And so down, you know, and put them on the internet for years to come. People can kind of just hear the, the, the everyday stories of what it was like in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and you know, what, whatever the case may be. So that, that's like my non-selfish reason of starting the podcast, <laughs> but. Yeah. Well, I think it's rad, dude. I mean, it's, uh, it actually made me like try to jog back and try to recall and remember things. And man, it's hard. I wish I. Um, well, the thing is, I don't have access to my journals and stuff. Cause I actually used to journal a lot of the things that, or at least write down things that I thought were important back then, so I wouldn't forget them. Cause my dad told me to, <laughs> and they're like buried down in some footlocker somewhere. <laughs> so you, you used to like journal like like out there like every day. Uh yeah like um. The first, the first one, initial invasion really didn't do anything, um, as far as like taking notes down, and I really regret it. A lot of stuff uh, between those first three years really blurred together. 
Um, my 04 one was a little bit better at it, at least if there was something that was pretty important, or at least I thought was important. I tried to write it down so at least I could go back and be like, oh, yeah, okay, I remember when that happened, at least have at least a month, you know? Mm-hmm. Maybe not always have the day, but at least a month when something happened. Um, and then cruising 305 really wasn't out there too long anyway, but it was still definitely a very uh, definitive uh, time in Iraq, going through the whole Phantom Fury 2 part. Um, and it was 07, I actually took really good notes. Um, uh, and it was it was a lot better, and I can actually go back and read that and actually be like, oh, now I really remember that one. So it took a few to figure it out, at least trying to do better with trying to recall things. But it gets really hard sometimes. All right, well, hopefully I can jog your memory a little bit. <laughs> um, but you, yeah. So you said your dad told you to, like, journal. So was that... What, is he also a, a veteran or, of combat or or any kind of veteran or? No, he. No, nah, just a big uh, big supporter, man. I mean, he we come from a family of it. His dad was a uh, World War II uh, pilot. Um, his uh, dad's brothers, uh, all the O'Hares who live up in Virginia, North Carolina. Um, all my all my grandfathers. Uh, family they were all like navy marine corps um so my dad like understood it and uh but he was given two choices coming out of high school was either vietnam or college and he was like well i'm a good swimmer so i'm going to go to college and swim so that's (laughs) what he did (laughs) i guess that was probably probably smarter (laughs) yeah i mean but he's a pe coach he was my swim coach my entire life he's like my hero he's a firefighter paramedic um he started a marine rescue uh, program in uh, North Florida, which is now known as the like marine rescue, marine rescue, ocean rescue community. Um, what they are today, like he really did a lot there, um, heavily involved in the community. So like the guy's like literally done like every job a kid could ever dream of outside being an astronaut or something. So he was always my, my one of my largest support. You know, it's my rock. He's I talk to him about everything. He knows everything I've ever done. So. You know, we have a really close close relationship. That's cool. So you're you're originally from from Florida, right? Yes, sir. Northeast Florida. All right. All right. So what was um? So obviously you said your dad was into uh, like public service mainly. So what was like growing up like like childhood and did you play like sports sports at all or? I did. Um, being that my dad was a um a uh, PE coach for an elementary school. Um, we, uh, my, my brother and myself grew up like, you know, being able to play pretty much every sport. My dad was a firm believer in being well-rounded as an athlete. Um, we grew up swimming competitively we were the age of four. Like at the age of four, I was swimming in the YMCA summer league, the, uh, the fall league for just U.S. swimming. And uh, so that laid down kind of the groundwork uh, for just being a really good athlete because the endurance was there, my strength was there. Um, I grew up uh, playing baseball, basketball, um, dabbled a little bit of football, but he really wasn't big on the whole intramural football sports back then just because of all the injuries coming up in the 80s and early 90s. So um, 
he was just one of those guys like, hey, I want you to never be picked last. You don't have to always be picked first, but you will always be starting, you know, in every sport that we played. And it kind of it carried on all the way through um, elementary, middle school, high school, um, you know, pretty much in high school, I did every sport outside of football. I wrestled, I played basketball, um, dabbled in some baseball, track, field. Um, swimming was obviously my bread and butter. Um, and uh, pretty much anything in the water, really. Uh, that was big. that was big. My brother and myself were just e-throws in any water sport, and we generally crushed it just because of our background, uh, which I think also helped me going into the military because I was super comfortable being uncomfortable in pretty much everything I did. Um, so that was like that was awesome. Very regimented lifestyle. I might as well like you know been in the military my entire life, even as a kid. Cause my dad was you know. If you're on time, you're 15 minutes late. If you're 15 minutes early, you're on time. That was my dad. I mean, he literally ran us like we were in the military without even knowing it. So it was a super easy transition for me to go to that lifestyle because I had already been living it my my entire life already. I, I, I like that quote you just used. You were uh, <laughs> super, super comfortable comfortable being uncomfortable. That's a pretty, I like that. That's a good quote. <laughs> That that pretty much sums up the military in in like one one word or one or one sentence. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, if you're not willing to just kind of go with it, it doesn't mean you're not gonna bitch. Doesn't mean you're not gonna like what's going on. But you know, just it's like you know, my other favorite thing I tell people is endure the suck. You know, like it's just that's the life we live in. You chose it. You volunteered. You signed the dotted line. No one's forcing you to be here. So either deal with it or move on. So, so let's kind of get into um, how you got got to the military. So, did you join right okay. out of, right out of high school, or? Yeah, pretty uh, pretty close. I was I was looking at the whole college game and seeing where it was going. Um, I just something inside me told me I just don't think I was fully ready to go and commit to that whole life. Um, I know I could have probably pursued it, especially with the swimming gun applied for scholarships and done that, but I was just kind of like, I was ready to get out of there. I was ready to get out of town. I was ready to move on. I knew I wanted to travel. Um, I knew I wanted to go do things, something bigger than what I was already part of. You know, I had a good lifestyle. I was already working my way up in Marine Rescue, Fire Rescue, uh, what applied, um, gone to Fire 1 and 2, completed, and uh, had my EMT, and could have been a lieutenant pushing up into the captain ranks already as a uh, Marine Rescue, and I was really good at it. I mean, it was what I've been doing since I was 14 years old. Um, I started working f uh, Fire Rescue, Marine Rescue on the beach as a lifeguard at the age of 15, being paid to being a chair as a 15-year-old, saving lives. Um, so... That kind of lifestyle, being already in those positions of you know dealing with people drowning, doing CPR, um, dealing with some pretty heavy um, life, you know, at a very young age, um, dealing with death and seeing all that, working heavy rescue with the with the uh, beach fire uh, with my dad um, on all these calls, um, I was already kind of felt like I was kind of groomed, you know, to do something else, but I just didn't really want to be there, so. You know, like everything else, I had a lot of friends who'd gone to military, had guys who trained and gone to the uh, special forces, and I was like, I'm going to join the Navy and be a Navy SEAL. <laughs> and so, you know, it wasn't saying I wasn't in shape. I was in probably the best shape of my life. Um, 
And I was like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. So I know the recruiters were kind of already knocking on my door. Um, they had already kind of been feeling me out. I was like, nah, man, military's not my thing. I got a good thing going here. And so I finally went back down there and talked to them. And uh, I was like, all right, man, make me an offer. I was like, you're not getting me for free. <laughs> and so, you know, and I knew enough about that. And, you know, they were like, hey, man, check this out. This is what we'll do. Um, you've got good scores. Uh, you know, you're in really good shape. We think uh, the two routes for you are either going to the SEALs or becoming an air, um, air rescue swimmer. I'm like, all right, cool. So I'm at the boot camp. Um, no contract for either or because they said fill it out. You can you can screen for both of them in boot camp. And they were right. They didn't lie to me. Uh, they weren't feeding me a bunch of guests. Um, the only thing they made me do, um, at least to lock me in so I wasn't going on desk if I changed my mind, is... Um, with my medical background, like, hey, dude, do you know what a corpsman is? I was like, no, I don't know what a corpsman is. They're like, they're like the medics of the Navy. Um, we think it'd be good for you to have an A school in case something happens. Uh, so I'm like, all right, cool, I'll do that. And that's kind of how I ended in. You know, I uh, it was July of 2001. Um, you know, the summer after I'd gotten out, and uh, so that's how I ended in. I went in, screened, took all the stuff. Um, passed everything at MEPS, and then right after July 4th, I was like, hey, man, I want my last weekend here, July 4th, had a major rager, um, <laughs> and then I was on a bus after July 4th weekend and heading uh, to the airport and flying out. Out of Jacksonville is where I mepped out of. Okay, so uh, I kind of want to backtrack a little bit. So you you, gra you graduated high school in 2001 then, like June, June 2001? Yeah, 2000, 2001, I am staying on an extra year this one for my dad for one more year. So I technically could have graduated in 2000, but I stayed on one more year um, just so I could uh, swim with my brother. So yeah, 2001 just when I officially walked. Okay, so did was there any uh, correlation between – so b besides the 93 attacks on, on the World Trade Center, the first like real – time America like felt terrorism was in 2000 with the coal did, uh, yep. did that have any kind of because um, obviously this is pre 9-11 and I kind of want to I want yeah. to that, get to that in a second but did that have any kind of um, did, did the coal have like the same kind of effect on people here that like 9-11 did like did that make you want to join it all or or was that not even like a factor you know, I'm not going to lie, man. I, I knew about the coal. Um, I, you know, was somewhat in current events, but no, not really. I, uh, I, I came in specifically just because I was like, I knew that the military offered, you know, things. Like, I knew that I could go there, you know, and continue to pursue kind of what I was into, but just at a different level. Um Okay. And I was always fascinated with um, with the special forces community, Navy SEALs, EOD. Like me and my cousin back in the day, when we were little, would like cami ourselves up and put on some fatigues that we got down from one of those secondhand stores and like you know crawl through the freaking woods and swamps and stuff, playing right. freaking you playing know Army. playing that game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know. So it was like it was always something that was in my mind. I just really never thought I would do it because I really hated anything to do with institutions. I didn't want to be 
part of that anti-establishment. I was a punk rocker, man. I mean, I smoked weed and freaking party like a rock star. I hated everything about that and was on the vocal uh, team. And, like, we had anything to do with that. And it was really funny how I sort of panned out that way. <laughs> All right. So you, you, you go to boot camp uh, July, July 2001. And... Yep. Uh, I'm assuming that was Great Lakes, right? You're that's still yeah. okay. Yep. So you go Great to mistakes. <laughs> now, um, boot camp's two months long, so that brings you right till right to September 2001. Yep. Which obviously yep. we all know what happened then. Um, what was, and and again, kind of backtracking a little bit. So uh, you wanted to go in as a seal. From, yep. from, from my understanding, uh, SO wasn't a rate yet back then so no, you would no. go you would go to an a school and then you would go to and then you would apply to like go to buds right is, is that how it yes. works okay so yeah. so you um first question are you still in boot camp or or did you just freshly graduate when 9-11 happened and i had freshly graduated and i was literally on a bus crossing the street to um naval hospital course school up in great lakes Okay, oh, that's right, because core school was up in Great Lakes at that time. Yep. Um, now, when 9-11 happened, uh, especially in the Corman rating, I'm, I'm very curious on, like, what the atmosphere was like, because obviously, you know, we mainly go with the Marines. Um, what was, like, what was that like? What was, like, the atmosphere of, like, the instructors? Like, um, what, what was just the atmosphere of, 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 like, the military at that point? Like, what was, because so I was... Uh, I mean, I remember the day very vividly, and I was in sixth grade when that happened. I remember, um, and and I was in school right across the Hudson. I could go to the boardwalk in my town, and I could literally see the Lower East Side. Um, wow. So, I mean, like, I saw it. I smelt it. Like, I saw the smoke. Um, so, I remember pretty pretty vividly, like, that day. Um, like, I remember when the principal came to our classroom. We were in journal time. I remember what I was wearing. I was wearing a red and white uh track p miller tracksuit with my red and white iris and fours like i remember very very vividly but i was you know i was still pretty young like i didn't i understood what was going on but like not to like the gravity of of what it really was because i you know I, I was 13 um but i do remember like that day and the following day like all the american flags like flying on the back of everyone's pickups like uh, uh, like i saw the change but i'm i'm very curious on uh, what the atmosphere was like for someone in your situation where you were, like, you know, in the military, um, but in a rating that was probably going to be very, like, that was going to be impacted by by what happened because obviously, you know, we were going to go to war. Um, so can can you just kind of like expand upon like expand upon like that atmosphere like on that day and and, and the following days of that? Yeah, um, you know, like you, I, I definitely remember everything that was going on around us. I mean, we were literally just freshly graduated. Um, you know, we did the whole the whole walk. Our families are there. And then after that, you know, you got a little downtime before you actually, like, process out, right? Like, that was just the graduation. And then you still have, like, a week or two left. And it was during that time, like, we were just in transition. Um, and we're, like, waking up, uh, looking at the TVs, uh, all of our Instructors came in. Uh, we were still just phasing out of uh, out of drill, um, and they're like, "Hey, everybody, we need to talk." To, um, they pretty much were like, "Hey, who here is from the Northeast, um, specifically New Jersey and New York?" 
man, there were a bunch of guys that, like, raised their hands. They really didn't know what was going on because we, we didn't have cell phones back then. We didn't have Facebook and all that stuff. Like, there was no – there was social media. So it was only new. Unless you watched the news or read a newspaper or had the radio, like, you didn't know what was going on. Right. Um, so they pulled all those guys aside. Um, people started getting a little nervous. We are like, what's going on? And they turned on the TV. And as soon as the TV turned on – it was literally, uh, like, as the TV turned on, you just see this, you know, massive bird fly into the um, to the second tower. And all you see is this first tower kind of crumbling, burning. And I'm like, what movie is this? And they're like, this isn't a movie. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, the towers were just hit. And, you know, I'm from, I'm from Florida. Like, I, you know, I don't really know a lot about it. Yeah, and I'd kind of been—I've been up there like once, and I so I didn't really know understood what they were talking about towers, and all you see is just like just straight pandemonium going on, and they're like the towers were just hit, and I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, and so like I didn't fully comprehend it, you know, and finally like they like break it down and told us everything that's going on, and I'm like, so like these planes just like like flew into the tower they're like no this was a terrorist and terrorist hit and i'm like like okay like still not really you know comprehending everything what do you mean by terrorists like what what is all this about and you know because i was i was super ignorant to that like i didn't right. understand what was going on we haven't had anything happen since the since 1991 and even then that was completely different than what this was you know like that right. was a planned coordinated conventional warfare we were going in, and but I was also like eight or nine when that happened. You know, like actually, I don't know. That was born '82. That was '91. So yeah, I was almost you know ten, right? It's so almost ten when that happened. Right. And so like that was still really young for me to really comprehend that. I just knew what Desert Storm was, and so you know they finally see, you know, we sit down. You see some people actually getting kind of really upset and bothered by it. They have families there. Now that was their biggest thing was. We need to get these people in touch with their families. They need to let them know. And then the whole base, dude, was on lockdown. There was no getting on, getting off. Like, things were straight locked down. That's when it became really ominous. Like, that was when I was like, what's going on? And the course school instructors had, like, fully picked us up, took us in for in-doc, and they're like, hey, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what your school's going to be like. All we know is that we are going to be going to war. You need to take this real like this your life has changed you need to understand what you're getting into as being a corpsman they brought all this history in showing us exactly what corpsmen were we'd always been with the marines we were always going forward they're like you need to truly understand what you were about to embark on because very near future you are going to war and i was like Oh shit! <laughs> I didn't have this in my contract. What was going on? But, um, but on the real though, like it was like I was excited because I was like, oh man, I'm about to do something. Like, right. dude, we're doing something. But at the same time, I'm like, people die in war. This is gonna be crazy. Like, what did I just truly volunteer myself for? And so, yeah, that was kind of it, man. Like, it was just people were trying to figure it out. It was straight pandemonium on all sides. I mean, because, you know, it takes about the instructors. They're all young, you know, for the most part. Like, there were some guys who'd been around, but for the most part, most people we had as instructors there, no one had been to combat. No one had been in 
people who joined in the knees and were still in and, you know, they may have been in for 10 years, if that, and, you know, so no one really had a true understanding of what we were about to get involved in, and so that was why it was just so, so surreal, like, I mean, yeah, that's, that's kind of it, you know, like, we were just like, hey, we're going to learn this trade, and we're going to the Marines, and we're going to war. That was all they kept saying. That was literally like every instructor's like, you better be ready. You go with the Marines. You're going to get some. And I'm just like, cool, dude. Let's <laughs> do this thing. All right. So you um, – so did that like uh, – did they like ex expedite school at all, or, or did you still have to go through the they – were, They were talking about that. They, that was the big thing. Like that was the thing they kept saying, like this score school is going to be as long as you think it is because we're going to be pumping you guys straight to back then, which was what was known as Field Medical Service School, which you know today is FMTB East or what? It's Field Medical Training Battalion. So okay. back then it was called FMSS, and that was the whole FMF thing. Um, completely different uh, than what we have today. Super archaic. TCCC didn't exist. Um, all the things you see with the uh, hyper-realistic training, live tissue, like none of that existed back then. Like it was straight Vietnam-style medicine, battle dressings that were super thick, and like literally everything you saw on MASH, that was what I was working with. Like it was, oh, wow. it was some archaic stuff. But that's a little fast forward, right? We're fast forwarding a little too much there. But um, that's what they were pipelining us into. Um, I'd got in again. I had a lot of prior um, training, obviously, like BLS, um, ACLS, uh, EMT, all that stuff. I'd already been working on before I came in. So our very first test was the um, uh, was the CPR test. Remember that? I don't know if they did that for you, but our very yep. first test was BLS. Yeah, that was, that, that was like um, we, the, the first two they days. They gave us this stuff, and they took this test, and this was kind of like this. Oh, I'm losing you, dude. Are okay. you there? Yeah, I'm, I, I can hear you again. <laughs> do I got you still? Yep, you're okay. good. Yeah, you're good. It, it looked like you were fading out there. Um, so yeah, like I said, the first test was BLS. Um, I knew that test verbatim because I was a BLS instructor. Um, so I sat down and then I was like, are you guys for real? Like, you want me to take this? Or it's like, yeah, I'm like, okay. I was just like, <laughs> bloop, 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 circled it all the way down, turned it in. And they were like, are you serious? I'm like, I, I teach this. And they're like, oh, so they created all the tests. They pulled me aside with a couple other people and they're like, hey man, so what's your background? I'm like, oh, you know, I've done X, Y, and Z, and they're like, all right, cool. So we have this program. It's called the um, the Advanced Placement Program. Like, we're we have a way to basically pipeline you faster through core school, but it's not easy. And no shit, it wasn't. Like, I had to take um, two to three tests a week and two to three uh, practicals a week um, to be able to like streamline my way through this program. Well, I was about halfway through and had gone through uh, like almost a month and like I was like just doing the thing and but one of the guys I actually became really good friends with and I was still his roommate um, stayed in the class that we originally classed up with and I was like I really want to hang with him because like we both were from Florida we met in boot camp he was a surfer I was a surfer um, and he was like the only guy I could like really relate to because we both were skating all the time, skateboarding all the time, going down to Chicago and hanging out. And I was like, I kind of want to like hang out with him, but I can't because I'm always studying and doing this thing. So I 
kind of basically more or less just stand back like two or three tests in a row. And they're like, hey, man, like we don't know what's going on. And it was like the nursing program part of it. And they're like, we don't know, maybe you're just not doing well. Maybe just like maybe some classroom time would be better for you. And so they rolled me back into my class, which I was kind of ahead, but I still like let them catch up. And so I ended up washing out of the advanced program just so I could, which there was nothing more advanced about it, just you were just taking more tests and more practicals faster than you would if you were in a regular class. And so I could literally hang out with my friend and graduate with him. But the funny thing is, two of the guys who stayed in that program didn't leave until we finished anyway. So I could have been done and sitting around for like two and a half months until December, which was our actual graduation date. Mm-hmm and be all super stressed out as opposed to just being with my class and hanging out with my friend every day. And so it actually kind of worked out, I think. I just happier with that. I was just like, this self-pacing sucks. Like, you have no life. You're not able to do anything. You're, like, studying all the time. And I was just, I didn't really like it. I, I was having a lot more fun being with the class and doing the regular thing with the actual instructors, instructors teaching. Um... You know, and actually going, the practicals were easy. Like, I mean, it's all basic nursing stuff, remember? Like, you know, I have this, I need this, I'm doing this. Like, it was, right. I don't know, it was really, really mind-numbing stuff. I don't really think I learned anything in core school, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you had to go through the, you had to go through it to learn it, um, you know, to be a basic possible corpsman. Um, I just wanted to gather, so I go to do the field med thing and go be a Marine. Right. All right, so you grab- so I end up getting through that, and in December we go on hospital. We go on uh, we go to hospital, do our clinical thing, and then by Christmas we come back from Christmas break, and then we were all heading to our prospective places. And you went to the FMSS at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. Yeah. So here, actually, there's a piece of story that you don't know. Um, so remember, I came in contract seal, right? That's what I was gonna do. Okay. Um, while I was in boot camp, I go through all the selection stuff, the PST, go through all the training, you know, crushing the game, you know, and doing everything the right way. And right before I would grow, right before I walked um, from boot camp, going in the battle stations again. This is seventeen plus seventeen years ago, and I still remember this. Um, I started feeling like other shit. Like, I didn't feel good. I was starting to have fevers. I was coughing. Um, like, I just felt like crap. And I was like, man, I need to go get looked at. And I went up to my drill instructor. Um, he retired as a master chief, actually. Um, I'll never forget him. Back then, his name was MS1 Frierson. I actually remember my boot camp instructor name. Um <laughs> And he was MS1 back then, MS1 Frierson. And he's like, what do you want, O'Hare? I was like, dude, I don't feel good. And I was like, like, really don't feel good. And he knew it. He could see it. Like, he's like, all right, um, go over there and get checked out. So I go to medical. And, you know, typical BS. They go in there. They, like, it's like you treat like cattle. Like, they don't care. Um, I get in. They're like, all right, man, take your temp, all this stuff. And... They take me back, they look at me, listen to me, and they're like, yeah, man, you got like a little a little upper respiratory infection, no big deal, you'll be fine, take these pills, and you'll be good. I, all right, cool, man. So I go back, we're getting ready for battle stations, it's like a week later, 
I am just not doing good. Like, I'm getting worse and worse and worse. Like, I couldn't breathe anymore. I was, like, struggling. I make it through battle stations, dragging ass, like, you know, get into battle stations, and they go check us out, and I go back to medical. I'm like, dude, I don't feel good. Something's not right. I am not able to keep up. I am not feeling well. I'm winded. This is not normal. I was like, I was like, I'm a really good athlete, and I'm having trouble walking here. Um, they finally do a chest x-ray on me, and they're like, yeah, you've got pneumonia. <laughs> I'm like, sweet. Um, what is that? And they're like, you've never been sick before? I was like, nah, dude, I've had, like, a cold. You know, like, I've never been, like, sick in my life. And this is crushing me. Like, so I get that. They treat me. Um, they gave me, like, uh, probably a Z-Pack back then. You know, we walk, my parents see me, like, I was, like, three shades white, like, sweating, <laughs> they're like, what is wrong with you? My mom was pissed, my dad was, like, really concerned, so I had to go back in for another PST, like, this is our final one, and I'm like, I can't even fucking run, much less walk at this point. Um, they're like, hey, dude, uh, you don't look so hot, and I'm like, no, nah, man, I feel like crap, like, I'm, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this today. They're like, all right, man. Um, we're sorry to say, dude, like, you're just not fit for this right now. You're going to have to come back and try again later. Maybe you can screen in core school and all this other shit. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so pretty much lost my seat um, to that. And they, uh, they said, yeah, man, go to core school and see what happens there. And so, yeah, man, core school was there. Um, tried to be able to get a shot at screening again. Um, but I ended up getting stuck in a C school. Um, it was to me um, to go AVT, Aerospace MedTech. Um, my, myself and my best friend, Brandon, uh, both got selected for C-Schools. So we didn't even really remember right now how we got that. So, um, yeah, so I went through core school, fast forward, get into field med. We went straight to Camp Lejeune. We are on hold for like two months because it was so backed up from all the pushes of getting all the fleet returnees who weren't, uh, who weren't 84 or 4. Mm -hmm. uh, which is obviously the FMF um, Fleet Marine Force uh, Corpsman. And so there's a ton of fleeties getting pumped through who've never been through before. Um, so we go down to Camp Lejeune, um, North Carolina, class up finally, um, get there, and that's when I learned about the SARC Amphibious Reconnaissance Corpsman. And I'm like, this is really cool. Um so I'm like, yo, Brandon, let's screen for Sark. He's like, all right, let's do this. So we get down there, and we're like, hey, man, we want to screen for this. So I'm like, cool. And, you know, it was it was like, it was kind of like almost like boot camp all over again. You're getting yelled at for everything. You got to freaking shine your boots. You got to, like, press. Because this is back in the day when we had um, had the, uh, you know, the throwbacks, man, you know, the tricolors. And so you had to press those things, like, all the time. Like, you had to you know, make sure you have sharp creases and everything, you had to freaking stay full of your damn cover, I mean, like, it was crazy, you know, like, you're just, like, boot camp all over again, um, getting yelled at, marching everywhere, you're doing hikes every week, um, we built up to, I think our final hike was, like, a 10 or 12 mile hike, um, which it wasn't bad, I mean, it's North Carolina, it was flat, there was some swamp, no big deal, it was, uh, pretty easy, um, do a lot of battlefield medicine stuff going through. It was like basic, uh, basic first aid, doing whole head-to-toe assessment. They're like screaming at you, trying to make believe like there's like casualties and firefights going on over your head. Um, then like a final exercise, which was um, 
kind of like going through the whole thing of setting up a, uh, a more or less setting up a fleet hospital. That's what it was all about. Like it's nothing compared to today where these guys are and girls are going through, and you're really getting some awesome training. Uh, back then, it was just this is all we had. It's all we knew back then. You know, we had nothing to really base it off of. So the whole idea back then was being able to set up a forward deployed fleet hospital, just like Mash. You set up these old GP tents, and you had to set them up, and then you set up like the surgery site and you know, putting up all these poles and tables, and then we set up a casualty collection point, and then you go out and get these really old school mannequins. I um, mean, some of them are role players, and you go through your assessment and learning how to basically, all right, I need to put a bow dressing on this guy. The whole tourniquet thing, that wasn't a real big thing back then. We didn't even have tourniquets. All we had were uh, basically taking a triangle bandage, rolling it up. And you tie it around this guy's arm or leg and has this little, basically, whatever you can find to make like a, like a little, it's like a circle you throw it through and tie it over top of a stick or whatever you have uh, um, and you wrench that thing down and then you tie it to itself and boom, you got a tourniquet. Like that's how tourniquets were done back then. It was really old school. Um, and I can still do it today. You know, like, if, you know, it's like one of those things you never forget how to do. Um and then, you know, so we get through that, and then we're finally able to scream. So we scream. We do really well. Um, we crush the PST. It's the same thing for Sark as, as it is for SEAL. Same type of thing. You run, push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, swim. You know, same deal. And they're like, all right, man, you guys did a great job. We're, uh, we're going to go ahead and look at your scores and let you know what's going on. Well, we'd forgotten about the fact that we were told we are going to this other school. You still with me? Yep. Okay, I thought I lost you there. Yeah, you, um, you like cut out for a second, but you're back. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, I keep seeing it on my screen whenever like uh, your our connection is not doing well. Um, but anyway, yeah, so we do well. We get the scores, and they're like, hey, guys, um, we really want you, but the Navy's already paid for you to go to another school from here. And we're like, what are you talking about? They're like, you're going to go to Pensacola for this AVT thing. And I'm like, God, again with this AVT thing. Um, I'm like, well, can't you guys just change it? Like, we're not at the school yet. What do you mean? We've already been cut funding. Can't we just make something different? You know, I don't know anything about the Navy. I've only been in for like 10 days at that time. Right. Um, you know, and they're like, no, sorry, guys. Like, the Navy's already paid for your funding to go from here to this school in Pensacola. And so I was pretty salty at that point. I'm like, you know what? I lost SEAL. Now they're taking away this recon thing from me. And so me and my friend make our way from there over to Pensacola to go to this uh, aerospace med tech. Um, it was interesting, to say the least. Um I was there the very first day. We're in class, and they go, does anybody not want to be here? And me and three other dudes raised our hands. I wasn't going to lie. I was like, no, I don't want to be here. I want to go to be a recon corpsman. They're like, cool. Well, guess what? You still got to go through the school. I was like, you guys suck. I was getting pretty salty. I didn't want to be in the Navy anymore after that. <laughs> um, I was like, what did I sign up for, man? This is garbage. And so learn all this stuff to be an AVT and – some some things had happened while I was there. Uh, I wasn't really happy. I um, I ended up losing a very um, very big influence in my life. Had uh, passed away while I was there, and they didn't even let me go to the funeral. Um, and I live in Florida. I was only eight hours, nine hours away from my hometown to go to this funeral, um, and so I was kind of kind of pretty upset about that. And uh, 
So I basically just kind of gave up. Like I was at the very end of the program. I had my final project to do, um, which had to deal with medical records and stuff. And you know, I knew what I had to do. I just didn't care. I was just super, super depressed, and I think everything kind of just was kind of happening. Like, you know, I was like, man, this is what I came in the Navy for. I just lost a huge influence in my life. Um, and so I was kind of, I was getting, you know, I was pretty pretty devastated. Um, and so they, um, they, uh, they basically were like, hey, dude, um, you either turn this project in or you're literally going to make it to the entire end of the program and you're going to not make it. Like, you've literally been here and you've done everything they do to pass this program and you're not going to pass the program based off your final project because you had to. It was a requirement to do this final project. And so I kind of was just like, you know what? I don't care. Whatever, dude. Just <laughs> send me wherever you want to send me. I'm Don't give a shit at this point. Um... So that's kind of like that whole track, and it's kind of like, you know, I say this, and it seems like I'm dragging on, but it actually literally paves the way of how I became who I am and where I ended up, and it ended up being probably the best decision that ever happened for me um, was going from there to 1st Marine Division. The senior chief that was there was like, hey, man, I think I know where you need to go. And he's like, you want to go get something? He's like, you want to go do something? It's really, I'm sad to see you not, like, complete this program and become an AVT, but he's like, I don't think it's where you need to be anyway. Um, he's like, no big deal. You go do your 18 months in, in the fleet with 1st Marine Division, and you decide you want to go to another C school, you'll be fine. It's 18 months. That's all you got to do. Um, and it wipes your, you know, your track history record clean. Um, so that's how I ended up in 1st Marine Division. I went from there... He's uh, to California and ended up in 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, and this is now October 2002. So I came in July 2001, and in October 2002 is when I ended up in 1st Marine Division with 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. All right, so I, I kind of want to um, pretty much go over everything that, that you just said just to kind of give some context to uh, you know people who may listen who, who may not know what a lot of those acronyms and, and, and words you used um, so you, okay, no worries. So, so you went to your A school uh, after boot camp, which is the the school where you, where we learn our primary job. Um, and then after that, you went to the F, FMSS, which is um, you, you use the the uh, the eighty four oh four a couple of times. So yeah. Um, uh, in the Navy, you you have your primary job, and then you can go on to follow on schools to to get special. Um, to learn different specialties, and then you're you're awarded a, an NEC, um, which which is yep. normally a number code. Um, and in order to yeah. serve with the Marines as a corpsman, you need to have the NEC eighty four hundred four, which is like that the combat the the um, the FMSS school, which is pretty much combat medicine. Yep. Um, yep. Now it's pretty interesting that they. Um, that they uh, that they actually wanted to send you uh, that they were even sending anyone AVT um, at that time. I figured everyone would have went right to you know FMSS and then right to a battalion because obviously you know we were ramping up to, to go to war. So that's pretty that's pretty interesting. Um, and lastly, I just want to touch on the the uh, Sark, um, which again many people may not understand. Um, it, it, kind of a side note it's amazing how many people like don't 
understand like the relationship of the Navy and the Marines and, and how we're the same, you know, the Marines are part of the Navy. Um, so, uh, Sark is essentially the, I guess this might be like an over-exaggeration, but they're essentially like the SEALs of the Marines. Would you say that's like a fair, like they're like the, the special ops of the Marines? Is that like a fair way to, to describe them, you think, or? Uh, um, yeah, they, uh, they go through a tough program. Um, now, what you would actually relate to the actual Navy SEALs coming from the Marine Corps today, which is they, because they, they did, yes, amphibious reconnaissance, um, or, um, or they had force recon, and those were the elite of the Marines, but they were not, they were not SOCOM. They were not a part of a tier one organization. Um, so that actually is accurate but inaccurate, because in order to be in the same realm with uh, Army Special Forces, um, Green Berets, uh, the Navy SEALs, you had to actually be in in that community, and recon wasn't. That's why they were trying to get that. So now what we have is the uh, Marine Raiders, which was on our MARSOC. They are actually equivalent to the SEALs. So those guys are in the same, same playground. Um, recon and Force Recon are still not in the same playground. It never will be. That's not their, that's not their job. Okay, but they do go through a lot of really cool training, and um, are you know I feel like a lot of their schools are equivalent, um, but to say they're the same would be kind of misspeaking a little bit. But yeah, they do some really cool stuff. Okay, all right. So you, so you were sick. So the Navy pretty much said you know, uh, tough shit on the SEAL thing just because you were you were sick, right? Yep. Um. So yep. Then, kick you, rocks. <laughs> so then you you try to push for this SARC, the SARC program. Um, but the Navy already funded uh, the AVT school, which again that may yep. be hard for people on the outside to to understand. But that's a that's a pretty you know not a common thing that happens, but you know a, a, that's kind of shitty. Like, you know, no, knowing what that means, you know, being in. Um, but it, it's still kind of crazy how they like sent people to see school like that um, when like we're good, we're like getting ready to push into a, a war, which is pretty crazy. <laughs> Yeah, they were still sitting. I mean, we saw a lot of people who went x-ray tech, went, you know, the whole audio route, went respiratory. I mean, all the C-schools were still available, and people were going. You know, the only thing that was different from before I was there to when I got there is there was no requirement to go through field med to go to these C-schools. Now, when I was there, when I was going through, it was a requirement. Everybody had to go to field med in order to go to a C-school, regardless if you're going to the Marines or if you were going to go to a C-school. Now remember, the AVTs, Aerospace MedTechs, those guys work with Marine Corps wings. So it wasn't just saying that you weren't going to go to the ground elements, but you could have ended over at the Marine Corps wing side of the house, not just the Navy wing side. So remember, we named Marine Corps, so a lot of of these C-schools overlap to both green side and Navy side because we still have the um, the Marine Logistics crew, um, which has all those C schools, all those techs working in there. So X-ray, respiratory, like all those techs, all could fall under a field hospital platform coming from a hospital on the Marine Corps base. So it doesn't mean you never will be with the Marines. You may be at the hospital, but you could still be um, mobilized as a fleet hospital, which that we did uh, going into the initial invasion. We we mobilized an entire fleet hospital, and all those people who were techs 
had gone to field med were all pulled into that flea hospital platform and still went overseas to Iraq anyway. They just weren't on the front lines. They were working in the back where the next session on the care was. That's like the, the medical battalion, right? Or no? Like, yeah, yeah, okay. that's medical battalion as we know it today. Okay. All right, so you... So we're in, um, so you, so do you graduate or you don't graduate from ABT? Sorry, I lost you. I can't hear you right now. Um, did you end up, so you talked to the senior chief at, at the ABT school towards the end. So did you, yep. ult, did you ultimately end up graduating or did they, did they cut you loose at the end? No, they, they cut me loose at the end. He kind of realized that it just wasn't going to work out for me. Um, and thought that it would just be better in my career to put me somewhere where I'd actually be utilized, which, you know, cool thing is back then, that was a little bit easier than it is today. You know, things have changed in the last 17 years where it comes to stuff like that. Um, you know, kind of like a not a great start for my career, but it's not like I lost rank. It wasn't like I was punished. I didn't go to a, you know, I didn't go to a DRB and get yelled at by chiefs or anything like that. They were just like, hey, man, um, you need to sort yourself out, but I think this will be a better fit for you. And just kind of called it like it was, you know. It was kind of like dropping out of a out of a program in college, you know. It was kind of a waste of money, but at the same time, I was so new to my Navy career, it wasn't like I wasn't going to be able to recover, you know. Right. All right, so they send you to um, the uh, – they send you to Camp Pendleton, right? Right after that? Yep. Yep. All right. So this yep. is – 1st Marine Division, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. Um. And are you with uh, infantry or, or like what part of the Marines are you with? Yeah, that's infantry. So if you go to 1st Marine Division, you're in infantry. Um, if you go to the Marine Logistics Group, then you're part of the support side. So I went straight to 1st Marine Division and actually had already been assigned. Um, back then, that's how they did that. Uh, now it's completely different, but... Back then, you were just assigned to either 1st Marine Division, 2nd Marine Division, 3rd Marine Division, and then from there, they would assign you to a battalion. My orders had me straight to, not not just 1st Marine Division, but straight to 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. Um, now, I think how it works is you go to a division, and you're assigned to a regiment, and once you get to the regiment, then they assign you to a battalion as needed. I think that's kind of how it goes now. Okay. Um, so yeah, 2002, I'm driving across country um, in uh, a 1991 Toyota 4x4 that uh, was barely street legal, but I made it all the way from Florida to California in that thing. Um, that was a long, interesting drive. Um, and uh, yeah, all the way up to um, San Clemente to uh, what they called uh, San Mateo. Uh, I think I believe it's called 52 area. Um, and uh, that, yeah, right into... Um, Right in the third battalion, fifth Marines. Had no idea what I was getting into. Man, that was a culture shock. So, what was the um, because uh, at this point we're still not at war yet, right? Or are we? No, we... we're not at war. No, okay. we were ramping up for it, and I didn't even know it. Right. Um, so, what was but the? No. Yeah, we. Had... What was the? So you're we're in October, two thousand one or two thousand two. I'm sorry. Two. 2002. 2002. Yeah, October so 2002. So we're like a year after 9-11. Um, yep. So you check in there, like, what's the app? Like, does ever, at that point, do we, it's not if, it's when we're, we're going, or, like, what what's the atmosphere like, like then? 
Um, the atmosphere was kind of different because um, we'd already kind of had Marines in a combat situation because at that time we had Marines who were in Afghanistan. Um, a, a, um, a Marine Expeditionary Unit, um, for those who don't understand, is Marines don't just fly over and go into combat. They also go on ships and travel around the world and they train. Um, we had a MU um, that had actually set foot into Afghanistan, so guys had already been getting some. Um, and so you guys knew that. Uh, the battalion that I went with, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, they had just came back off of a deployment um, doing the same thing. They were on a MU. They were on what they call the 31st MU, where these guys fly over to Japan, train in Japan, jump on ships, and travel around all the South, uh, South Pacific. Um, they literally just got back right when I checked in. Um, so those guys are just kind of like, you know, some guys are phasing out, getting out of the military. Other guys are like, you know, ready for the next thing. We didn't really know what was going on yet. And then all of a sudden, fast forward, we're doing training, ramping up for our next deployment. We didn't know our next deployment was going to be the invasion of Iraq. We just knew we were getting ready for another deployment. Um, I think it was right around December. December going into January of 2003, all of a sudden we got our warning order. You know, for you, those of you who don't understand what a warning order is, this is coming down from the big dogs. This is coming down straight from Pentagon all the way down to our level, basically saying, hey guys, this isn't going to be just another deployment. This is the deployment. Um, that was when we were told, hey, call your families, call your loved ones, let them know, hey, I'm about to go do something. Um, so I'm like, wow, okay, that, that shifted quickly. Um, you know, called my called my family. I was like, hey, you know, this is what's going on. Um, I had also kind of been in a relationship uh, with this girl that I met in Pensacola. Um, and I'm like, hey, you know, we've known each other for a little while now. Things are kind of going one way or the other. Um, I'm going to war. And she's like, what? I'm like, yeah, we're going to war. We're going to do something. Um, so she flew out to see me, and flew out to see me again, and so as I'm getting ready to go to war, and um, in uh, January, uh, decided to, thought in my best interest, let me go ahead and just marry this girl. So we went down to the courthouse and get married. That was, you know, interesting. I still have to figure that one out. Um, <laughs> and so in January and then February, I'm on a freaking plane to Kuwait, and we, uh, you know, we're all ramped up in our desert camis. Um, you know, I issued an M16A2. Um, for y'all that don't understand, that is an old rifle. Um, we don't use them anymore. Um, they've been phased out for quite a while. Um, and uh, I had a 9mm um, Beretta on my side. So an M16A2, a 9mm Beretta, and an old archaic Vietnam-style medical bag um, with a bunch of stuff inside it. And yeah, I was on a plane to Kuwait. And we get to Kuwait, and we're setting up for everything. And then we got to meet this guy who I kind of knew who he was. Didn't really understand who he was, but he was somebody big. And he happened to be the RTC5 uh, commander, as you now know him as Secretary of Defense General Mattis, or was General Mattis, not Secretary of Defense Mattis, um, was our commander. <laughs> so he gave this amazing speech. Um, you can still pull up on Google today um, and actually see that speech. Uh, basically going in, and he told us to win hearts and minds. And in winning hearts and minds, he said, put two in the heart and one in the mind. Um, 
<laughs> you know, that was that was that was that, you know, I don't matter, man. Um, and that was pretty awesome to say that I'd actually worked for that uh, guy multiple times, and then obviously now he's our secretary of defense. So that's pretty sweet. So now we're getting into battle, right? We've gotten all the way to this point. Um, we uh, we jump on this thing called tracks. Um, basically, look like a giant tank with no actual um, with no actual turret on it. Doesn't shoot out of you know big old uh, artillery shell. Um, and right in the back of it, um, it's got this big door that goes down in the back end, like just big old like it looks like a dump truck back end door just hits ground. Um, I'm with Weapons Company, Third Battalion, Fifth Marines, in the 81 millimeter mortar platoon. So we shot mortars out. That's what we did. Um, trained with those guys, went to a bunch of schools to be with them, um, worked, uh, learned how to work their mortar system with them. They were awesome guys. They taught me everything about that stuff, how to be a Marine. Um, you know, we get in our uh, tracks and we're, we're like, hey guys, we're crossing a line. So it's just about to get real. Like, we're literally crossing a line from Kuwait into Iraq at this point. Um, they, I know they sent a bunch of birds over, bombed them. You know, a lot of things were going on. You know, recon, SEALs. You know, SF. Everybody was already out there doing their thing. Um, so you know, we're now the we're now the this tip of the spear going in. You know, the Marines are heading in. Um, we cross in. We get our first mission. We uh, stop where we're stopping. Um, my um, track commander. It was also our uh, our um, our gun our gun sergeant. Um, was like, all right, guys, it's time to get out. And uh, door goes down. It's nighttime, um, and we run out. And I got the my medical bag, and I got a base plate, base of the mortar systems on my back, because I just carry the base plate out. Um, run out, throw the base plate on the ground. The other guy coming in with the mortar tube, locks it in. I grab a stake. I'm going to go do the front front stake, and the other guy does the rear stake. That's how we get our front and back azimuth when we're shooting our direction of travel where we want this mortar to go. And then the sight guy is the most important guy in the world. He carries our mortar sight. Can't let that thing disappear because we wouldn't be able to shoot the mortar without it. He locks the front sight onto the mortar system. We get our um, we get our elevation and uh, direction of fire from our um, gun sergeant. Boom, we're locked in. We're always we were the, one of the fastest guns in the platoon, which was awesome. Our, our mortar our mortar team was on on point, and we're locked in. We're ready and. Got him, we got our mortar prepped, and we're sitting there saying, hanging on one. That was what he always said, hanging on one. And so our sergeant be like, awesome, here we go. And we drop our first mortar. And I'm like, holy shit, we just dropped a live HE round. <laughs> and, uh, and while this is all going on, we're in an oil field. And this oil field is on fire. Like, there's, like, I'm looking around, I'm like, holy shit. Like, I, look, I feel like I'm on a Hollywood set right now. There's, like, all these oil towers and things burning, and I'm like, dude, like, this isn't real, this is too, this is no way, this is like, we're in, we're in an oil field in Iraq, I feel like I'm in a Hollywood set, I'm waiting for, like, something to happen, like, oh, whistles blowing, like, oh, you know, Hollywood set clearing, oh, man, it was the real thing, and we really just dropped a real mortar, and, I mean, that was just kind of how it went, like, we jumped in our tracks, rolled out to... Drop mortars, jumped in our tracks, pulled out the drop mortars, and that was literally what I did for 30 days. You know, and mind you, in a full, in a full freaking uh, CVRN 
freaking suit too because we had to be mopped up the entire time because we were told that there was, um, you know, weapons of mass destruction and chemical weapons and all this stuff. So this was also in a full chem suit, you know, mop suit at the entire time, the 30 days I was in this thing. There were multiple days where we were sitting out in our mortar pits. Every day we get out, dig a mortar pit, have to, like, dig this thing out. It took hours to do, and then they would, like, get this call that we could possibly be gas. We had to put our freaking gas mask on and hood up and everything. And we're baking. This is our rack. This is, this is in springtime now, and it's hot. Like, we were, it was so hot and so miserable. Um... <laughs> We went days without getting resupply because our, our resupply um, log trains were uh, were freaking hit, and um, so we went one MRE a for like probably seven days or so, um, which is miserable. Um, we had a ration water, um, you know, no shower, no 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 nothing for 30 days living in the back of this track. Um, and it went all the way up until we got done. And then we made our way down to a little city called Adonias in southern Iraq, and they loved us. And we hung out there for basically four and a half months until we finally went home in September of uh, 2003. So when you uh, kind of going back to the, the initial push, <clears throat> what like what was that like when you guys crossed the line from Kuwait to Iraq? Like, w- were there was the Iraqi army there, which obviously was was still intact at that time, like waiting for yeah. you? Was yeah, it like- we met res- we met resistance, man. Uh, our weapons company, um, what we call Cap Platoon, they were the heavy guns. Um, that's your 50 cal, 240, Mark 19, and also tow missiles um, on top of these uh, Humvees. Uh, met quite a lot of resistance. It was actually crossing into um, Iraq, uh, not just um, uh, not too long ago. I was actually one of the first uh, casualties of the uh, Iraq war um, came from our battalion. Um, we lost this guy named uh, Doc Johnson. Um, he was uh, a third class at the time. Um, he uh, They took an RPG, I believe, straight to the side of the Humvee door. Now, remember, this is before Up Armor. So our guys in Humvees were not protected. They had no armor on these Humvees. Um, so if you got into gunfights, I mean, you couldn't really... Anything high, anything larger than small arms, which would have been just a big pull and a pistol, would have gone right through those Humvees. And he took an RPG straight to the side of the door, um, killed him instantly, um, and sent a lot of shrapnel into the gunner. Um, the gunner survived, but... Um, um, Johnson was killed. Um, they actually uh, they named a uh, clinic after him over at uh, Balboa. It's actually at MCRD. The uh, clinic at MCRD um, is actually named after him. Um, so yeah, it was real, man. We uh, we realized that things were, you know, it was like it was played for keeps. You know, after we hit that resistance going through the berms, uh, crossing in, things were a little bit easier. There were definitely some firefights here and there um, with guys. Um, I'll never actually forget it. It's one of the, one of the craziest things I ever uh, ever heard. I'll never forget it. It's just like burned in my mind forever. Um, we had a, a major sandstorm. Uh, if you know anything about sandstorms over there, it's brutal. You can't see your hand in front of your face in the daytime. Uh, we were hunkered down on the side of this berm, dug in, um, and I uh, heard some things moving. It was really early in the morning. I believe it was in the morning. I can't remember if it was at night or in the morning. 
I just remember being awake. I think it was on Firewatch. I was on a radio watch at the time. And then I heard this, stop, 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 and just this blood-curdling scream. Um, the, uh, they had this thing called APC. It was kind of like a giant bulldozer. Um, it was like, pulling a trailer, and they were trying to move it. Well, unbeknownst to them, our uh, battalion XO um, and our, uh, I think he was our sergeant or sergeant major, acting sergeant major, were literally ran over by this APC. Um, it killed the XO um, and crushed the uh, legs. Of, I actually was a gunnery sergeant. That's right. He was the uh, battalion gunny. Um, it crushed his legs. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was pretty bad. Um, we lost them because of that. The gunny survived. Um, I think he ended up doing pretty well with his career. He was medically retired and everything. Um, we ended up losing, I think, uh, two more people in a firefight in another city, uh, you know, during that. You know, but other than that, I, I had some casualties of Iraqis who were hit, um, you know, a couple gunshots and, you know, treated them. But it was it was really nothing like, nothing like I saw in 2004, 5, and 7, where, like, I actually had to deal with, like, IEDs and stuff like that. Uh, so the first one was, it was super surreal, but it just happens so fast. It, it just, you just flies right by. You don't really, you don't really get to see a whole lot because I was in a track and I was so far removed from really like, direct fire because we were, we were the indirect fire. We were the guys dropping mortars on people. So, you know, we really never came into any like direct fire um, the entire time we were out there. So you guys just kind of like supported the like infantry like off to the side? <laughs> Yeah, we were the infantry, but we were supporting our guys on the front line. Baz, and we were basically just far enough outside of the actual direct contact to be able to drop mortars for them. Yes, yeah, so that's what Webbis Company does. We do blocking movements with our vehicles and go in and clear spaces, and then the mortars, the 81-millimeter mortars, go out, just offset themselves from wherever the line platoon um, that we're supporting goes in, and we do clear it for them by dropping mortars on them, or if they're taking fire from a building, um, they tell our forward observer, our forward observer contacts back to the line, says, hey, here's your target, and gives them the grid coordinates of where we're going to drop a mortar. So you're there, that, that deployment's a six-month deployment? Yeah, that actually was eight months. Yeah, I left, left February, came back in September. Okay. So when you... Um... When you get back to the states, like what is it like? Because now we're now we're at war. Um, like, what was it like coming back? Like we're because again, I'm still pretty young at this time. Um, let's see, 2003. I'm uh, I'm in eighth grade. So like again, like I'm still not grasping the whole concept of what's going on. So what was the um, like, what was it like coming home, being like one of the initial pushes in, into Iraq? It was, um, it was pretty, uh, you know, like it was hard to really kind of grasp. You know, like we didn't really understand, really truly, what it was going on. Um, we were talking about we won the war, won the war. You know, back home, that's all we kept hearing. Um, a lot of guys, because we were supposed to be home back in July. Um, we weren't supposed to be out there later than June. Then we get pushed to July. Then it gets pushed to August. You know, and then it's coming up on September, and, like, you know, this is, again, before social media, 
Um, we had no cell phones. We had an, uh, a satellite Iridium phone that we could call back to our families like meh, once a week if we were lucky. Like I went, I went, I literally went like months before I was even able to contact my family again. We had letters. We could write handwritten letters. I know a lot of people don't understand what that is, but you actually take an ink pen and you write letters and then make words and the sentences and paragraphs on a paper. Um, it's called a handwritten letter, um, not a text, not an email. Um, so that's how we got our families. Um, and so that would take weeks. You know, you like write a letter back home, and then you're waiting and waiting and waiting, and then you get a reply, and you got to remember, okay, what was this letter about? You know, like what did I even write? I don't even remember. Um, you know, so when we got back, it was just so weird. And as as we get back, like as we're leaving, getting on a bird um, out of Kuwait as we're leaving Iraq, me and my friends joke, we're like. This war ain't over. It just started. We're coming back. There's no way this this entire country was just completely upheaved and flipped over. We toppled their government. They have no sustainability for anything. Um, I was like, we're coming back. Like this isn't over. It just started, and that was the joke. But we knew we were coming back. Right. You know and. So we get back, and everybody's like, woo, you won the war in Iraq. And we're like, yeah. Because <laughs> so. I'm sure, like, the general general populace is, like, is thinking about the, at this time, they're thinking about this war just like the ninety the 91 war where it was just kind of over in, in, like, a month or two. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and they all think it had to do, like, with this whole 9-11 thing. It had nothing to do. Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. They were right. not even remotely in the same same like category, you know, like it was, so like that was a big confusion and people were like, yeah, you gave it back to him for 9-11. I'm like, yeah, that wasn't the, no, no, that was totally different, man. Not the right people. Um, that was Afghanistan. Um, so like that was the big thing where a lot of people just weren't really well informed. They didn't know, much less that we weren't truly well informed. We were just told that we toppled this, you know, tyrant and he needed to go and, you know, so Saddam went on trial and, of course, you know, they hung him and, you know, so, like, we were just, like, not really truly understanding. We just knew that we just opened up Pandora's box and we were going back. And sure enough, I get back in uh, September, go home on leave in October, come back in November, and they're like, hey, guys, we're ramping up. It's time to go back, and because all these new things were happening, because we have this entire country that's unstable as fuck, and now we got to go back and create stability. And now we have all these new players that came in, all these new, you know, terrorists, actual real terrorists. Now we're inside of this country because it was a open playground for them. Right. And so that's fast forwarding in the 2004. So at at this point, we we pretty much. Uh, I mean, we essentially defeated the Iraqi army, right? At yep. this, at this yep. point, but... Saddam's revenge is out. Like he, they were, they were done within the first two to three months. So we just had the leftovers of his bath party, as you call it. But they, they caved. They wanted nothing to do with it. Um, so what it is is now you have all these, all these trained military advisors, all these military people who have no job and have no money. Um, they're pissed. So, um, so they turn into like warlords and this pretty yeah, much, pretty much make the uh, which becomes the insurgent essentially, right? Yeah, exactly. The first, yeah, the first insurgency in Iraq, and now that's what we're facing. So when I read your the, the bio that you sent me uh, based on your career, 
like this this is the part that I really want to get into is, is like this next like two year snapshot two thousand four, two thousand five because uh like this is when you think of the Iraq War like the next two battles that we're about to discuss is is what you hear um yep you know Fallujah and and Ramadi um so you you're back from your first deployment for like a month or two and then you get the word that hey we're going back in two months. So you said you get back from leave on in like October, you mm-hmm. get you get back September, you get you take your leave, you, you get back in October, and they're like, hey, we're leaving again in February. Um, yep. are you, now are you still with the mortar battalion, or did you switch, uh, switch divisions or, or battalions or uh, as, as like a side note, like uh, like I did the the podcast with like Robert, like I I feel like I'm never ever gonna understand like how the numbers work with the Marines. So like, I'm sorry if like I jacked that up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no worries, dude. Um, so are you still with, with the mortar, uh, the mortar battalion? No, or do you no. So I, I, um, so when he got back and I got back off of leave, um, I'm in what was known as, um, fifth Marines, fifth Marines regiment. Um, in fifth Marine regiment, you have first battalion, fifth Marines, 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, and then our little red is Stepchild, which is known as 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines. Now, without giving off on another tangent, just know that 4th Marines used to be an entire regiment, um, but they had lost their colors. Um, Basically, their entire regiment was overran, and because of that, they were more or less disbanded and broken up amongst a bunch of um, regiments. And so 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines was absorbed into 5th Marines. Um, second battalion, fourth Marines was up. They were they were going to deploy, and I was like, I want to go back. Like I want to go back now, um, and I just wanted to go. And so I got asked. Can I? Uh, yeah, can, go ahead. Can I just ask you a question? So when you say yeah. that, like you, um, you wanted to go back now. Uh, this may be getting like too personal, but at this point, like you, do you want to go back because you're like. Uh, like institutionalized, like you just don't. After that first deployment, like the initial push, like do you just not? Are you just like not happy back home? Like do you want? Like do you want to go back because of that, or, um, like 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 why did you like why did you feel that way? You know, man, I I I, I sit back and look at this at myself and look, and I think I just I felt like I found my niche. I found out what I was good at, and it felt comfortable. I liked being in that crazy, not knowing what was going to happen, um, just that fast pace of just you know utter chaos. But I felt like I was better in that. Like everything slowed down as the crazier it got, the slower it got for me, where I was able to fully function. It was weird. Um, I'd, I fed off of it. I liked of that, you know, and it was just, I mean, it was awesome, you know, like, I liked being there, I felt like I had a purpose, I knew what I was doing, it was easy, I woke up every day, knowing, hey man, we're going on patrol and we're doing this, we're hitting this house, we're going here, we're doing this, and it felt right, you know, it just felt comfortable. And, and um, I'm mean, kind of backtracking for a second, but I'm sure like that first, kind of like what, what we said, like that first deployment that you did with the initial push, 
like we're not dealing with the insurgency yet. Like we're actually battling. No. Uh, we're battling like another army at that point. So it's, yeah, it's yeah, a it was bit, conventional warfare. It's a little bit more like structured and and, and, and conventional, if if you can kind of use those words to describe war. Yeah. So it's not yeah. it's not like as chaotic as once the insurgency came in, and then we had to deal with IEDs and suicide bombers and and that kind of stuff, which I'm sure added a whole new aspect to to war. Um. So, uh, did you feel like, well, you know what, I, I guess we can get to this, this question in, in a little bit, but so you, um, you, you get the word that you're, that you're going back, um, and you, you know, you said like you wanted to go back, you're excited, uh, so how long from, um, getting the word that you're, that you guys are going back, uh, like how soon did you know that like you're going to, uh, Ramadi, right? It was the first, the first battle. Yeah, so Ramadi, um, we, I didn't really know where I was going because uh, I wasn't in that part of the uh, in that part of Iraq where we were anyway. Um, they just kept talking about this thing called the Sunni Triangle, um, which is made up of basically three cities going from Baghdad, Fallujah, Ramadi. Um, there's a bunch of little ones in between there, and it's, they call it the Sunni Triangle because it was Sunni heavy, and they did not like us. Those were the guys that we were basically fighting against. Um, yeah, the Sunnis and the Shiites. Um, the Sunnis are the ones who actually had control over um, Iraq, if I remember correctly. Yeah, the Sunnis were basically a part of what Saddam's regime was made of. Um, if I remember correctly, correctly um, I don't know if you pulled it in front of you or not, if you even looked at it yourself, the Sunnis were actually the minority, like, and they weren't the large group, but they were the ones who had the power. The Shiites actually were outnumbered, the Sunnis, but the Sunnis had all of all of the money and all of um, the support because that's who was in, in power. Um, and so they were basically coming in and those are the ones that we were having to deal with. Um, basically going in and later we found out the insurgency which, which later became the uh, the brotherhood, whatever they called themselves, um, that were creating all the discontent. They changed names like three different times, but they were essentially the same people. Um, they were just getting funding from other people, um, you know, coming in outside of Iraq who were funding the, this insurgency and, and, you know, basically these terrorists. Um, but it first started as the insurgency. Um, we, I found out in two months. I got back in November. They're like, hey, we're ramping up. Does anybody from three five want to go over to two four? Because two four never had had not been in Iraq. That two four wasn't in Iraq. Two four was on Mew for eleven months the entire time we were in Iraq. Um, so they had nobody who had the background. Say their corps didn't have the background. So a couple of us jumped over to basically be kind of like the senior guys. Hey, we've been there. This is what we know. Here's how we can help. Um, so I go there to the headquarters battalion. Um, working for the battalion aid station was basically farming out like wherever they need me I was like I was like that guy I was that utility player on the team like you put me anywhere and I'm going to be able to work because I'd already kind of been in the game you know and I knew all the positions and so I just went in there you know willing to basically support whatever needed to be I actually supported the uh, battalion commander for pretty much most of the entire time I was there um, on what they used to call the uh, the job team. Basically, these were the guys who he hand-selected and to basically go out to all the forward bases. And so, you know, our job was to protect the battalion commander. And we always rolled with the 
battles. And the cool thing was that our battalion commander, Sergeant Major, wanted to get some. These guys are always looking for a fight. And, and so we were always getting into it. Um, a lot of IEDs. Um, you know, first, as soon as we got there, within the first month being there, I actually really saw for the first time what war and chaos looked like. Um, for I would be burning my head. Uh, my chief at the time uh, was like, hey, you know, we had a pretty bad casualty. Uh, I was dead. Um, and the RPG uh, had gone basically through the front windshield of this vehicle and, I mean, you know, exploded, right? So it was, it was a complete mess, you know, it's just stuff everywhere, brain matter, you name it, and we had to clean out this Humvee, um, and I didn't care, I was like, you know what, and the chief knew, she's like, he's like, I don't want to put that on any guys, I'm like, no, nah, I can do this, I can get out there, we can do this, and, you know, like, it was really kind of the first time I really saw something like that, that was a whole new level of, so you when, know. when you went, um, when you went over, when you guys deployed, deployed there, did we, did the, like, um, cause essentially the Marines go in, take it over, and then the Army sustains it, right? Yeah, that's did, what was supposed to be done. Did we, at this point with Ramadi, did we, the, did we already have control of Ramadi since we, since, like, did we take it over from the Iraqi, like, Army when we defeated them and then held it, and then the insurgents were trying to invade and take Ramadi back? Or did you guys go? Yeah, they were. Go. No, we went in basically and were the added power to what the army had already kind of set in place. Um, there's this, there was this base called Junction City, which was established after the initial invasion, um, and it was just an army base. And but it there was a, that's we were right in the mecca of the shitheads, and these guys did not want us there. They wanted it back. And that was when we started dealing with a lot of the true insurgency of IEDs coming in the game. These guys are, you know, getting more well um, grouped together, uh, well-funded, um, you know, getting more um, weapons. And so they're basically attacking our bases and going after Americans as not as well as going after locals um, who aren't supporting their cause. So, so Ramadi is essentially the turning point from where I went from conventional... Warfare yeah, to, to like, insurgency, to like guerrilla insurgency, roof, like yeah, hundred percent. Yep, they. It's not like these guys got online with vehicles and came after us. Like this was us patrolling streets, and all of a sudden, you patrol down a street, and there's a lot of people there, and then you come back, and there's nobody there, and you're like, oh, this isn't good. So when people, when people were not in the center of towns where they normally are gathering during the normal hours of the day, that was our first key indicator. Like something's not right. And it was usually about that time as either an RPG starts firing off or we had ran over an IED. Because um, back then we didn't have the IED emplacement where you drive slow to detect, you drive fast. But we were bombing through streets. We did not drive slow. We were driving as fast as we could because the whole idea of running through the center of town would basically you would run past an IED. And we learned very quickly that's not how you do things. And, um, but back then, that was our TTPs. That's how we used to do things. And, and a lot of people think like Iraq, like it's just a bunch of villages. Like like places like Ramadi and like Fallujah, like that's like they're New York cities. Like it's, it's a little yeah, they were like built, city. Built up, yeah, built up cities, huge compounds, um, tall buildings. Um, so we had the one that was called the Hotel, Hotel Ramadi, um, is what it was later known as, and that was like one of our huge uh, buildings that had multiple battles fought through it. Um, 
you know, in, in that area. And, I mean, in Sockets, you had buildings that were going up nine or ten stories on either side of you um, and a very narrow two, you know, two-lane highways. And you, they had these footbridges, and that's where they would always set it. They had one footbridge, and this was on Route Michigan. That was the name of it that ran right through the center of Ramadi. And you'd have this one footbridge, and you'd look at it, even time it, you'd wait and see if they were going to be your first vehicle, second, or third vehicle. There's usually four to anywhere between four to up to eight vehicles in any given time on a convoy. Um, and they would either hit your first one or they'd break you apart and hit your middle part of your convoys, hitting this third and fourth vehicle, separating your two convoys from each other, your convoy into two splits between these two footbridges, and then you have buildings on either side of the highway. So now you're fighting on two fronts because they can either target one or two vehicles at a time and completely disable the entire front end of your convoy, so you're screwed. You can't turn backwards because they'd also hit your back vehicle. So it was either the first two vehicles the middle of your convoy, and then always hitting the tail end, so you can't turn around. You're basically boxed in into a really, really bad situation. Um, and they're just shooting down at at you. You're like, oh yeah, shooting down at us with you know, yep, pretty much an AK-47s and RPGs and grenades and everything going off. Um, you know, and so we learned um, the hard way. Unfortunately, again, this is also pre-up armored vehicles. Riding in back of Humvees, we used to call them suicide rides um, because we were almost combat ineffective completely with uh, one, I believe it was, oh, man, this is going back. Um, I believe it was Echo. It was either, yeah, it was. It was Echo. Um, it was one of our line companies. was almost 100% combat ineffective. We had lost that many people. We did not even have enough guys trained on machine guns to be up on our vehicles controlling 240s and 50s and Mark 19s like because we, we'd lost so many people. Um, we actually had a combat replacement um, group come out of actually 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. Almost my entire platoon of guys from Weapons Company all came out because they're like, Doc is getting some, we want to be with them, and they all came out. And basically we're supporting wherever was need be through the two platoons that were really just getting hammered. I mean, really bad. Um, multiple times we go out on patrols, you know, vehicles get disabled. Uh, one of my ones I'll never forget is we were in a vehicle. vehicle in front of us got hit, um, flipped the vehicle upside down. Um, there, the guy in the back, who was the gunner, I was thrown from the vehicle. Um, took a bunch of shrapnel from his own gun, basically exploding in his face um, when the IED hit. Um, shrapnel all through his mouth and uh, his face. Um, thankfully, he still had an airway, um, was able to maintain him, and we had to get him back um, to um, this outpost that we were actually going to. Um, and I was in a daze. I don't remember it happening because we all got rocked in the second vehicles. We were so close to the first vehicle. Like, it's complete days of, like, just remembering bits and pieces of it up to this pine. I remember getting there, and then we were waiting, turned the guy over to um, the surgeon that was there, um, get out, and we're actually waiting to go back out. And as we're waiting to go back out, um, the, um, the outpost actually got mortared. And so mortars are being lobbed in to our outpost, and I'm just watching them come over the wall and hitting. They're probably like the size of 60s, you know, nowhere near the size of an 81. Um, 
I turn around to kind of walk back behind the door of the vehicle. So I'm like, hey, you know, I probably shouldn't be out in the open. Let me go about around the vehicle. And this thing just cracks me in the back of the neck. Like, I got thrown to the ground. I was like, oh, my God, I just got hit. And, like, it was the worst feeling ever. I think. But the problem, the, well, the problem, not the problem, but the cool thing was is I actually still had my flak on, thankfully. And like a lot of guys do, they roll down their neck protector in the back because it gives you a little bit more freedom of movement because those things are very constricting. Well, I didn't at that time. I had the thing still up. Saved my life because a really nice piece of freaking hot metal had gone straight through the back of the flak into the neck protector and was actually sticking out and just, just barely pierced my back of my neck and my skin. Um, if I wouldn't have had that, who knows what happened. Either be disabled for the rest of my life because it would have gone through my spine, um, you know, or really would have wrecked my day um, and caused some, you know, really good soft tissue injury. Who knows? But thankfully, one, I had my flak on, and two, I didn't have my neck protector rolled down like a lot of guys did. I had it up still. Um, and that really, like, was a huge, like, um, one of the first two um, that, like, was, like, super close calls for me um, out there of, like, why you wear your gear the certain way. So, uh, just for the sake of time, because I'm sure we could have, uh, like, just a podcast on just six months in Ramadi. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, uh, yeah. Um, what, and because I definitely want to get to, you know, the, the, like, Fallujah, because that's just as big as Ramadi. But what was one of the like biggest slash close call slash most memorable uh, battle or encounter um, that like you that that uh that you kind of took from Ramadi with you like back home um the one that really was just like like it was just still today sticks out as like one of the craziest moments um, you know, because, like, clearing buildings and all that stuff was never really a big thing. Like, we just did it and did it, and we, you know, we just ran with it. You know, like, going through, um, you know, getting into gunfights was really, like, to me it was the easiest part of my job. You know, like, I mean, that's not hard. You go in and gunfight, you've, you know you're going to win because you're, you're Marines. You know, like, that's what we do. Um, it's when you're not ready. Um, and you're kind of at the mercy of what's happening. We had this one who was how we had all our little things we called like our missions, right? We had this one where we were in the soccer stadium, and it was a collection point. Uh, we we're going out and doing what we call like uh, talking knocks, as in like we basically looking for bad guys. We had the entire area uh, around this soccer field where we were doing this. This is a full on stadium, a soccer stadium in Ramadi. Um, those guys knew we were there. And they had already had walked off that entire stadium. They knew where we'd be staged at and how we'd be staged. Um, we were there for all of 24 hours, and finally it was when game time started happening. Like, we started taking a lot more fire being at this uh, soccer stadium. This was our headquarters area. Um, and then mortars started coming in. These guys started walking mortars on. By walking on, what I mean is they keep lobbing them. One goes further than the other, goes further than the other, goes further than the other, and it's a line. And it was walking straight onto our entire staged convoy that was inside this soccer stadium, all the way up to the 997, which is the ambulance, our military ambulance, the big high-back one. And at this time, though, we were working on somebody. This old man had brought his wife in, she was trying to get through because she was literally having a heart attack. Um, myself and another um, senior corpsman 
were working on this person, and because she was literally having a heart attack um, right there in front of us. Um, this is one of the locals, right? I'm assuming. Yeah, local. Yeah, this local. These mortars start coming in and just keep literally coming all the way through the entire freaking stadium and just dropping on all of our guys. I see this. My second class, like, pushes me down. He jumps on top of the freaking old lady. I'm like, I'm getting in the back of the ambulance. And so, like, I jump up in the back of the ambulance. I throw the door open, and this mortar just blows up right on the outside of the ambulance. Just throws shrapnel straight through the freaking door. I don't know how I did not get hit. But I got hit, but thankfully, another piece of gear I always have on me, and this is why I always carry it in my freaking pocket, I had my freaking green notebook. I always keep all of my knowledge in. You know, this, you know, the typical green military notebook, right? The one that could fit inside of a cargo pocket mm-hmm. was inside my cargo pocket, and this freaking like two inch freaking by like almost one inch piece of freaking shrapnel had gone through the freaking door back of the ambulance door. It swings open and right through my freaking camis, it was like lodged in the side of this book, right on the outside of my leg. And, like, blew me inside the thing. I was all super disoriented, and I'm all like, what the hell just happened? We get out of this thing, and I get out, and it looked like it was, like, a scene from, like, The Walking Dead. Like, people are just walking around, like, mumbling, stumbling everywhere, freaking injuries everywhere, and we're just like, holy shit. I'm in, like, one of my first real mass casualties at this point. And we had to, like, gather all these people, like, dudes with, like, holes through their freaking arms and legs and bandaging people up like, transporting people to the hospital, and I was, um, one of the things I actually did for that battalion is I was the ambulance driver, and also the guy in the back, so depending on who we had as far as medics, you know, being in or in, uh, in the back of the ambulance with me or not, um, at that time, I actually had my chief who was with me, he's a master chief now, and he was in the back of the ambulance, um, working on some people, and he's like, John, get in the front seat and drive. Just go. And I'm like, oh, shit. And I'm, like, hauling ass, bombing through this freaking town of, like, wars going on. Shit's firing off everywhere. All the way to our freaking, um, our uh, casualty collection point, which was at this, uh, like, other, like, more or less like a second echelon of care. It was basically where they would sort people out and get them stable to go on to the net, you know, where they fly them out to. And we just did that, like, all afternoon until we got all the casualties out of there. And I was just like, I don't even know how I'm still alive at this point. Like, a mortar just blew up right outside my door, and I somehow made it through that. You know, because you don't expect that. It's one thing when you're going through a building and you're in the middle of an engagement with somebody, and you can see the person shooting at you, and you shoot back at them, hopefully, and you win. It's another thing when you have that ominous feeling of where you're hearing a sound of something, and then you can no longer hear it. If you can no longer hear a mortar over top of you, that's when you know you're in a bad spot. Because, I mean, that thing is right over your head. And you don't know where it's going to land at that point. You know it's going to land on you somewhere around your area. It's always cool when you can hear a mortar and continue to hear the mortar. It's when you can't hear it anymore flying through the air. That whistle goes away. That means it's over top of you. And you're just you're just sitting duck waiting for that thing to hit the ground. Jesus. It's a horrible feeling. So how, how far into the deployment was that? Um, that was about... That was three-quarters of the way through, because we'd had the Battle of Ramadi at that point. If you ever hear the term Battle of Ramadi, that was in April, I believe. Um, that was like a solid four or five days of just straight fighting. Um, and I wasn't fully engaged on that one, because um, I was mainly working at the headquarters and basically going out and pulling people out. Um, 
you know, our, our corpsmen who were actually forward, forward in the platoons who were doing that were literally fighting to where we had to go and resupply them because they were running out of ammo. Like, they were engaged with the enemy as such a, as such a heavy fight that they were running out of ammo. Um, and that was insane. And we were going out there, bringing them what they needed, pulling guys out, pulling all the casualties out, and then taking them over. Because I was really good at trauma medicine, so it was better suited for me to be taking casualties in, and we were dispersing them out to places where we get them treated, and you wanted to make sure that you had the right people in the right place. Right. Um, my chief at the time was like, I need you for this. Um, as much as I wanted to get in there and freaking kick some ass, you know, it's, it's one thing where you can pull a trigger all day. It's another thing if you can actually do your job and save lives. Right. And that's what I was kind of there for, right? <clears throat> um, so that was like, that was a key thing. That was a key battle um, in Ramadi was the Battle of Ramadi. Um, at that point, when we finally locked down the city and put it into more or less martial law, we said, hey, you know, if you're out after this time, you're fair game. We don't care who you are. You are no longer our friend. If you're out on the streets after this time, we are considering you a um, combatant, and you will be dealt with. And so finally, once we secured the city at that point, um, things got a lot better for us. Uh, we didn't have as many engagements as we normally did, and we were actually able to actually secure the city after that, going into May and June, um, and we're really making some good things happen, and that made it easier for us when we were turning it over to um, the next group coming in, which was in September. Um, we did have another pretty big fight after that, going into the, literally the turnover. One of our uh, one of our bases actually literally almost overran, um, it was called Snake Pit, and uh, we did actually lose a couple guys there, which really sucked. Um, but you know, we were able to try to secure it and uh, move on out. And that was when I was actually transitioning out of there and going in support of uh, for like two or three months over in uh, to Fallujah before I actually came home. So um, for Ramadi, uh, McMaster's was in charge of that, right? General is it General McMaster's or? Was was he the guy? Cause um, do you know who Jocko Willink is, by any chance? Jocko, as in Jocko, the Navy Seal Jocko. Yeah. Yes, I am very familiar with him. Okay, so I I believe he was in. He was the SEAL Team commander for SEAL Team One, I believe, in Ramadi, <laughs> and uh, he always talks about a a, a um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A tactic. That they used, it was called like seize, uh, oh, what was it? Seize, hold, build, defend, or, or something like that. Did, like, did we implement that at all, or, or was that just like an SF thing? Yeah, no, no, no. That was um, that was more or less like what you had to do. You had to take seizure of your town, your AO, um, in order to before you could do anything as far as like building. And defending, you have to control it. And that was the thing. We came in there, thought we had control of this, but we really didn't, and that's how we learned the hard way. Um, you know, we weren't going out and making ourselves known. We weren't going out and patrolling, and we weren't more or less creating a rapport with the town. Um, and that really is a huge thing where a lot of people end up failing sometimes. They go in there thinking they're Billy Badass, and they're not building a rapport with the city, so they don't really know what's going on. The locals aren't going to talk to them. And so then you that's when you end up finding out what's truly going on because that's when you end up getting your PP slapped. Um, and we did. We got a slapped hard. 
um, until we finally were able to figure it out, which was really hard because when you have a city that has so many ins and outs, it's like how do you lock something down like that? And that was where that whole buildup of actually using a joint tactic, um, actually getting our other players to come in and actually play with us, like with the army, um, other surrounding groups, all of our assets, and actually truly coming in as a joint unit and locking down a city. And that's what we had to do, and we finally did. Once we did that, then we were able to actually fortify our positions and then truly defend ourselves and defend the locals. And that was the biggest thing is you had to get in there and actually show that we are here to help you. We want to get these people out of here. Because there were people who were actually like wanting us there. Then right. there for a lot, a lot of part of it was that they didn't. You know? And so it was finding out who was actually going to be our friend for the day and help us get to the root cause of what was going on in that town. Yeah, like, um like like something that uh like I've heard Jocko like describe a couple of times on on his podcast and and other podcasts is like when he was in Ramadi like they would go into compounds and he was like you know we'd kick in the door of of this compound and he's like it it's just like two kids playing soccer and like the you know the father of the family's like working on his car and it's like they just like you know they just wanted to live like a normal life and and we had to like show that yeah. kind of like what you said like we had to show them that we were there to, to kind of defend that, you know, defend their way of life and, and, and help them out. Yeah, and that, was, and that was where a lot of guys had to come in to realize that, and it was hard. It was that you're taking a, you're taking a group of people who are literally built upon going in and destroying stuff. I mean, because let's believe it. The, the Marines are an expeditionary unit. They are not there to build a rapport of people and necessarily go in and hold down a city. That's what the Army was built for. But because of something so new to so many people, we had to learn how to transition from we are not here to just literally level a town, but at the same time, you have to show that you are still a human. Right. And it's so hard to do that because when you're not fighting a conventional war, you know, you don't know who your enemy is. One day that guy could be literally telling you everything you need to know to help bring down, you know, either a high-value target or whatever it is you're looking for. But the next day the guy's in placing an IED to, to blow you up. Right. It may not be because he wants to. A lot of the times because his entire family is hanging in limbo. If he doesn't put this IED in the ground, they're going to kill his family. Right. And so that's what we were dealing with a lot of times. It's not people that truly wanted to fight us. It's because the insurgency was getting stronger and striking so much fear into the locals right. that if they didn't play their game, they were going to be annihilated. Right. They kind of had like no option at that point. Yeah. And that sucks because, like, now you're fighting people who either actually know what they're doing or you're fighting people who know what they're doing. And so you never know. You're walking out in the city, and in any moment, some freaking dude can pull an AK out in front of me the man dress. Or he could be literally strapped with a fucking bomb and walks up like he did to one of our guys and blows himself up in front of, like, four Marines and kills two of them. One of them's mangled for the rest of his life, and the other one can't see out of one eye. And that's just how it is. Jesus Christ. Yeah, that was actually on my. That was the one of the like last ones I had to deal with on my way out of Ramadi. So you, so you are in Fallujah and Ramadi on the same deployment. Yeah, we had people who basically would just bounce from one side to the other. Like if we were able to do that, um, but they found out that I was actually married and said I had to go home. <laughs> like you gotta go home, and I, I didn't want to, but I did. 
So you were, was that like another, um, let's see. So that was like another February to September. Was yeah. It like, was it like equally, Extended. S- equally split between Armani and Fallujah or? Um, it was basically six months in one and, uh, two and a half months in the other. And then I came home. So, um, was Fallujah, like the battle of Fallujah, was that after Ramadi? Yeah, it was actually started right when, while we were there. So they had like the initial, um, going into it. Um, and then they had, uh, the second one, which was after, right before I, I was leaving on my way out. I wasn't able to be there for the second major push through. It was like right in between that first and second one. Cause while we were there, the battle of Fallujah was actually going on. And, um, right when we were transitioning there, um, that was when Fallujah was super hot. And then they had the second push going through, um, as our battalion was leaving. I think that was that next November. I think it was like November of 04. I think going through the holidays was when the next big push was going through or a big battle was happening. So did we essentially did we push them out of Ramadi and they fell back to Fallujah? Is is that kind of like what happened, or was it just? Two, I think a lot of different... that was. A, I think a, they were two different fronts, but at the same time, yes, a lot of the insurgency was being pushed out of Ramadi, and so I think they were just piling up. All right, well, this is another major stronghold here. Fallujah is a massive thing for them to win because for them it was all about strategy. You, if you have a city that has multiple ins and outs, then you control a lot. And Fallujah was a big part of that. That was a big, big area where they could control a lot of traffic coming in and out of there. So it made it easier for them to get what they wanted in and out of that city. And that was what they were looking for. Um, running along those big MSRs, which are the big highways, they wanted to control that. Because that's how we like do our resupply and all that, right? Yep. And if they can hit us there, then they can stop us. At the same time, they can bring their stuff in. So were you... Um... Any uh, like takeaways from Fallujah as far as like battles or or engagements at all or? Um, that was uh, working more into the um, uh, to basically uh, working in the uh, casualty collection points, um, just bringing on my medical, what I've learned, what I've been doing, and uh, staging and doing that. Um, as far as getting into uh, gunfights, not so much on that one. Um, that was more in my 07 deployment where I was supporting a uh, sniper uh, platoon and working as their uh, senior uh, corpsman for the sniper platoon and going out and getting to all those uh, deals with them. And uh, that was pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Uh, I wouldn't say it was, it was nothing compared to Ramadi and Fallujah. This is 2007, by the way, with 2nd Battalion 7th Marines. Um, we weren't nowhere near as engaged as we were. We were actually fighting outside of Fallujah. Um, in 2007, we were in a place called Zidon, um, and there was this little little shithole nest known as Refouche, which was in Zidon, which is where all the, the turds were hanging out that we were going after as far as high-value targets. Um, we were basically doing anti-sniper and anti-IED. Um, that was basically our entire existence for our uh, sniper uh, platoon that was out there. And so we were staging up where all the platoons were basically going in and doing their... Um, doing their job, we would sit up out there and basically look and hunt for people putting in IDs or obviously any other counter counter sniper um, missions that we would come across because there were two of them out there that were making life hell for a lot of people, um, which they ended up did, uh, killing one of them, which was awesome. Um, 
we had a pretty uh, pretty good engagement. We were locked, uh, walked up, had this uh, house. It was a three-story house. Um, we inserted the, it was about a six six or seven click insert. Um, basically, almost call it like five plus miles um, of going into uh, getting into this place. It was a brutal, brutal insert because we're carrying a lot of gear, about 130 something pounds of gear that we carried on our backs at any given time. Um, and moving in, uh, we find this house. We set up. We thought it was the right area. We um, had a family that was in there. We took control of the family, but we let them go to their cousin's house, as they called it, um, which hindsight now, knowing a lot more about how this game works, we should have just kept them there the entire time, but we didn't. Um, so we had this entire house for ourselves. We're staged up top. We have a stage down below, um, and we're doing Overwatch and basically trying to look for what was going on in that area. Well, things started getting heated up. These people knew that we were there. Um, the bad people you know, started coming in. Um, they threw a grenade at our front door, blew up our front door. Um, um, that was fun. It was either a grenade or an RPG. I can't remember today what it was. It just happened so fast. Took a bunch of small arms fire. We basically started controlling the house and looking for our ways to either stay and hold the house. Um, our sniper team consisted of uh, um, two snipers, um, two um, Marines as 0311s. We had two uh, gunners and myself. Um, so we, you know, we had six or seven guys there. It was, it was definitely big enough to handle the situation. Um, we uh, basically call in for support to get us out of there because the things are just getting too bad. We didn't really have any way of really doing our job at that point anymore because we knew we were there. Um, so, you know, this, uh, the, this group of Marines were coming in with uh, vehicles. They hit an ID. Um, kills two of them, so that kind of like jacked up that ability for us to get out. So basically, we're out on our own. We had to wait till it got nighttime um, to exfil out, and we basically run out of the house um, through smokes, make a smoke screen, get out to the uh, to the middle of this field. We wait, um, bunch of gunfire going off because they were kind of like trying to take the house at the point, but we were already out of it, uh, which was awesome. <laughs> um, wait till things calm down. Um, they knew we were gone, but they did come looking for us. Um, and we basically had exfil out of there um, another uh, two or three miles uh, to get to the next platoon um, that was out there, which was a weapons uh, platoon, and get to their place where they were. And we basically just hung out with them for the rest of the mission um, and helped them out. But uh, that was a pretty scary one. Um, you know, it sucks when you have to, when you get freaking compromised like that. Uh, we got compromised like that once in, at night, and then we got compromised like that during the day, which was really brutal, having to basically fight our way out of a, out of a small village that really didn't like us being there, apparently. Um, and it was during the day, but thankfully we had air over, overhead, so we called an air support, basically, uh, a, uh, Cobra, two Cobras walked us on all the way to our next point. Um, when you have two covers flying overhead, no one's really going to mess with you because uh, they knew what the hell those things did. Um, so that was actually nice when that happened. Um, that was a fun one. We set up a hide, um, when I say hide, like a sniper hide, where basically we're building up this area inside something where you can't really see we're there. Um, and it was in a, uh, a, um, a ditch. Well, the ditch ended up being um, – what they used to flood their farm fields with. We didn't know that. We didn't know it was operating either. Um, that morning, after we sat in there all night and we were basically watching this one house because we were trying to basically collect information on something, 
um, the ditch became a rushing wall of water at us. And I'm like, holy crap, there's a wall of water coming at us, guys. And we scattered like ants out of this thing, throwing all of our gear up on top. And one of the bags didn't get grabbed. It was one of our rucks, and it started floating down along with one of the guy's Kevlars. And about 100 yards down, there was this old farmer, and he's just looking at us like, giving me that look like, why are you even in my ditch right now? Um, you know, like, you guys are idiots. And so, like, he, like, grabbed the Kevlar and grabbed the bag and pulled it up on the side for us. And we walk over and take it from him and say thank you. But now we're, like, out in the open. There's, like, five dudes just out in the open. And we, like, immediately my, my uh, guy who handles the air is on the phone He's like, yo, we're compromised. We need support. we got to get out of here. Where are we going? And they basically hooked us up with a spot to go to. Um, we had to run through. Um, thankfully, um, there were no real big um, issues with that and uh, just got a lot of dirty looks and a lot of uh, really kind of un- like kind of spooky, like, eh, this could turn really bad really quick if they wanted to, but it didn't. So thankfully we were able to get through our next uh, platoon to hang out with for the rest of the mission for that one and support them. It just sucks when things like that happen, but that's just that's life out there, you know. Things happen, things go sideways, and you just got to keep a calm head and figure out how to work through it and move on. Now, um, this is kind of a long shot, but <clears throat> now that you're in, like, the, the sniper world, do you, by any chance, know of a, um, uh, I believe at, at this time he'd be an HM3, uh, James Pell? I do know him very well. He was actually my senior corpsman in the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. We actually came to that battalion together. And I, I believe he's now, now he's a, a senior chief, I believe. Because um, he was he, my... He is a senior chief. Yeah, he was my chief at core school, so... Um, that's why I'm just curious. Yeah, so know him very well. We've known each other our entire career. Okay, because he has a pretty uh, interesting. Yeah, he story. <laughs> uh, from uh, I forget. I forget. Yeah, it's yeah, it's um, or it's either Fallujah. Yeah, it was or Fallujah. Fallujah, right? So yeah. it was Fallujah. Yeah. So when I left Third Battalion, Fifth Marines, and went to Second Battalion, Fourth Marines, he stayed with Three Five because he took over. He took over as their um, sniper platoon corpsman. Um, and so while I was in Ramadi, they had gone through to um, to uh, Fallujah for the uh, initial you know, deal with Fallujah, and that's when all that happened with him. Yeah, I actually uh, I, I reached out to him, and he didn't answer me. I'm trying to get him on here too. <laughs> but um, now, did you run into... Uh, um, Chris Kyle at all? I mean, I know he was a SEAL, but, like, like wh- was it true, like, how, like, the uh, the insurgents had, like, signs up for, like, his head and stuff like that? Like, did you see any of that while you were over there? We, we had heard something about that, but I think that was a little post, um, post-Ramadi. Um, when I say that, like, he had gone there multiple different times, and we know, like, I mean, you go back and look at the history now, you can go back and be like, wow, I mean, I'm sure that dude and his team was operating at the same time we were, um, simultaneously, side by side, and that just goes to show. Can you hear me? Yeah, man. I feel oh, like we kind of lost the show there. Yeah, we lost. it's all right, though. Oh, I can, like, edit that out. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, you know, I feel like we're going to have to do, like, a two-part series here. What's going on? <laughs> 
It's fine. I'm still recording, so I can just like chop that little break out. It's fine. Um, so you said that you um, you heard a little bit about oh, yeah, Chris Kyle. Yeah. So Chris Kyle. Yeah. Yeah. He was so. I think. I think when a lot of that started happening, where they were like, you know, putting bounties out for him and all that stuff, was a little bit. Um, I think it was closer to, like going into like his. Uh, 2006 push um, through at that point because I, I, I'm pretty familiar with his story. Um, I do know that um, you know when you talk about guys like Jocko and um, you know own, own guys I know that I, I work with now um, in the in the community is uh, you know a lot of these guys I talk to and like who've been around as long as I have are like yeah man like uh, we were out there the same time you were and you started like lining up like missions that we were running simultaneously and I had no idea that you know Big Brother um, you know, from NSW was right there with us the long, long same time. You know, going through in 04, 05, You know, going through 06, and then finally through 07, You know, they we were doing Dominate's hits on stuff. We just all had their own little piece of the puzzle, and you know, and you're just like, wow. You know, you didn't know that there was something that was actually that big going on, and you were a part of it. You know, like you did your job, kicking doors in and moving around. And, you know, and, and at the same time, you know, these guys are coming in, you know, right beside you or, like, maybe a town next to you and, like, you know, they're taking on another hit at the same time or, you know, that was the initial target, but we were just out there creating hate and discontent, riling things up so they weren't paying attention to, you know, whatever it was they had to and, you know, the, the true good guys come in and take it out, you know? Um, so it was, it was pretty cool to know that like we were doing stuff at the same time, and it was for a better cause, you know, for a bigger deal. Like it wasn't just meaningless work. Like we were actually out there doing something legit, you know. Right. Now, did you? So, your whole, um, uh, all of your deployments were all in Iraq. Did you ever do <laughs> Afghanistan at all, or? Yeah, I, I did a deployment in Afghanistan in 2014. Um, it was an augment. Um, this is after I'd uh, moved on with my career and actually went to uh, independent duty corpsman school to be a, um, more or less like kind of like the subject matter expert of the corpsman rating at that point. Um, your job is to work independently from a, uh, a doctor um, and actually go out for deployed into areas and you are the, you know, the person for medical. Like we have an, uh, they have a title they call the, the uh, senior medical department representative. Um, and your job is to run an entire medical department without a doctor around. And so I was actually at Kings Bay, uh, Georgia, and uh, checked in. Um, had already gone out and actually supported a couple things off of the East Coast for training for uh, for the uh, true warfighters on the uh, on the gray floaty thingies that had never been on before. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, those whole warfighter deals. And uh, so this uh, augment came up with, like, hey, man, we need an IDC. Um, you're going to have to go fill the billet. So I went out with this uh, team, Marine Corps uh, Logistics. So this is my first time being behind enemy lines. I had never done that in my entire career. Uh, so I was supporting a logistics company, and their entire existence was to basically take everything that the Marine Corps brought in uh, to Afghanistan out, and I was at Camp Leatherneck. The cool thing was, um, I was the last Marine Corps unit on Camp Leatherneck in Afghanistan. We shut that base down. Uh, we ran. We were side by side with a uh, Marine um, line line company, line battalion. So you know the true warfighters, as you want to call it. Um, and we were working side by side with them, and bringing all this gear in, and basically packing it up 
or distributing it somewhere else or destroying it in place. And we did that for uh, for six months um, and uh, until we shut down Leatherneck and turned it over to the Afghanis. Um, didn't go without any, like, fun stuff. I did actually have a pretty interesting uh, uh, thing happen there. This, uh, this Marine had... Uh, was working with a like like industrial shredder, uh, and somehow the thing had jammed, and the marine decided to try to unjam said jam, and got their hand caught up in the underneath of it and actually sucked their hand up into the shredder. Um, it was quite interesting, you know, non-combat related, you know, but it was pretty cool. I got to do some cool medicine there, and we had to basically figure out how to get this marine's hand out of the shredder. Um, Marine was quite distraught, but uh, you know, kept kept their cool, and I was able to get some meds on board to kind of, you know, keep the Marine at bay from freaking out, so I could key, uh, figure out how to get their hand out of this um, thing. We basically were able to pull the shredder part of this off, the two big shredding tubes that basically were locking this Marine's hand in. Um, we dismantled it to pull that out and basically transported the Marine with this thing still attached to their hand, but it was in a smaller piece, um, all the way to um, Camp Bastion, which is where the, uh, the main hospital was, and uh, work with uh, surgeons. They had hand surgeons, um, orthopedic surgeons, like everything was there, and working together as a team to remove this contraption from the Marine's hand so they could basically put the hand back together. And all the damage that looked really bad, like there were three, four fingers involved and they were able to salvage everything, but one part of the Marine's finger um, basically just lost like half a, half a little digit on a finger, um, like a section, you know, like where it's broken down into three pieces of joints, right? And it was just one part of it, um, the very tip basically, was gone. Oh, wow. And... Um, so that was kind of interesting, you know, different kind of scenario, right? You know, you used to, like, people get blown up and shot and all that stuff, and I've got a Marine with their hands stuck in a shredder, you know? Good times. <laughs> so that was my 2014 love right there, you know? Um, other than that, that was kind of a really um, uneventful, if you want to call it, like, as in combat, because I wasn't really involved in any combat on that one. Uh, but it was just different to be in a... You kind of see it from behind lines, like, you know, there's a lot of other moving parts that go on there, and you always think as, like, a warfighter, you're always the front line, you're the most important aspect of everything, but, you know, these people behind enemy lines are the ones who truly make your job easy by making sure that you get all the things you need, that you have your air support, that you have your food coming out to you, that you have your uh, resupplies for ammunition, and... These guys still get some, too. They still get shot at every time they leave the base because they're the most susceptible. They're in a giant, you know, logistical convoy um, with multiple large vehicles, and they have to get that stuff to you. And so a lot of the guys who are on the front lines sometimes forget that, um, you know, that the people who are keeping them in the fight are just as susceptible to getting into firefights as they are, um, and it can go sideways really quick for them. I mean, they. I'm sure, like, they probably have... Um, you know, as big, if not bigger, target on their back because, I mean, obviously the, the enemy is pretty smart and, I mean, they want to take out the supplies just as much as they want to take out, you know, the, the infantry because if they take out the supplies then the infantry can't really do anything. Right, and that's, and that's where that whole, like, you know, one team, one fight thing has to really be 
brought into the forefront of like understanding and you know the ones who are older and understand like there's always that there's always going to be that like you know we always get at each other you know you have the marines who are the the frontline 0311s and they always like to call um, anybody else who's not a 0311 a pogue which stands for personnel other than grunt um, and you know it's just like hey you know it's just, it's just a fun we get at each other like that. We like to make fun of each other and stuff. But, you know, the ones who really get it are the ones who understand truly what's going on. Um, but, yeah, so that was my 2014 deployment. And um, then I moved on to um, to uh, some screening and going into uh, um, Naval Special Warfare, which is where I'm at today and uh, supporting NSW um, as an IDC there and being forward. Um, you know, doing the thing with them is really about all I can go into that. But yeah, it's a it's a fun job. I really enjoy it. I've gone to a lot of schools, um, and continuing on with my career, and you know, seeing where it takes me. You know, I had 17 years in July, so I hope I still got a few more years to go do things and continue to deploy. And I really like where I'm at now, so I'm hoping to stay in this community and uh, continue on with my career. So I just kind of did some some math here. So you. Since you joined in 2002, your only shore duty was Kings Bay? Or I had one other shore duty in between. Um, it was actually at, uh, that was where I deployed in 2007. That was also an augment for me. Um, I was actually at a clinic on Camp Pendleton. Um, but it was cut short because um, I wanted to get back into it. And I actually uh, went to a school. Um, and uh, from that school, I ended up over at a first EOD company. And actually, we I did do a deployment in 2010. Uh, we didn't actually talk about that one. It was a Marine Expedition Unit, uh, 13th Mu. And I was the um, uh, a uh, corpsman with first EOD company in support of uh, the anti-piracy mission at the time that was going on. Uh, we worked with Recon and Force Recon. Um, and hitting up a bunch of different company uh, countries for training, and also at the same time were part of the uh, anti-piracy uh, of the fleet at the time that was going on out in the Gulf of Aden. Um, that was a six-month or uh, seven-month deployment um, in 2010. Uh, so you so, were, you were attached like an LHD for that, or an LPD? Yes, yes, I was that. Um, I was actually on an LPD. I was actually on the uh, Green Bay. Um, it was this maiden tour actually. Um, but we bounced between the LPD and the LHA, which was the boxer. We were the boxer ARG, um, 13th Mew in 2010. Um, so that was uh, that was that deployment there. So I was at a clinic, um, left the clinic, went to a school, came back from the school, and then went to first EOD company um, out of Camp Pendleton, and then was attached to the uh, 13th Mew, um, and that was a 24-month uh, tour, more or less. Um, and then after that, that's when I went to independent duty corpsman school in 2012. I went there uh, from 2012 to 2013. And so then my first true three-year-long stint at a shore duty was with uh, Kings Bay. But even while I was there, I was still gone a lot, which was nice. Right, because that, that's where you went and did the, the Leatherneck deployment, or I. Yes, and yes, 2014, yeah. So when did you get back from that? I got back from that, and um, funny enough, it was literally every single deployment I have been on my entire career. I don't know how this happened. I actually, a lot of people think it's really funny. Every deployment I have been on has been between February and September. Yes, I'm starting to see that. Yeah, it's a trend, right? It's pretty cool. 
Um, and so on that one, I actually left in April and our March. It was March, April, and I came back in October. Oh, yeah. um, October of 2014. 2014. Okay. Yep, and that's why I ended up back at the clinic, and then I left the clinic in uh, uh, 2016. Yeah, September, right? September. Yeah, because you 2016? left. Because we were working together. Yeah, let's say yeah. we. Uh, I got there. April, I graduated core school and got there April of 16, and then we were there for like the summer together, and then you. Uh, yeah, and you left. I left that September then. Yeah, yeah, August, September, yeah. So, yeah, that was when I left there. And um, That's, know, a, that's obviously and, where, where we met. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I'm stoked, for, I'm stoked to see where you're at, though, man. It's just rad that you're, you know, able to get out of there and actually, uh, you know, do some things. Yeah, um, I, I actually, uh, it, it's pretty funny how I got out of there. So, I had, um, uh, I had two-year orders there, obviously, and um, my PRD was June of this year. And in September, uh, like this past September, uh, is when my my uh, my window opened up to pick orders. And the week that my window opened up was the same week that we were uh, evacuated for um, uh, Irma, I think it was. Whatever the, the oh yeah, that's right. Whatever yeah. the whatever the last hurricane was. Um, yep. And I actually ended up going south to Orlando to evacuate. Uh, because my grandparents lived there, so I, I wanted to go be with them to make sure that you know they're they were all right. Um, but we had uh, you know no power, no anything, and luckily, like the second day of the window opening, uh, their power came back, and I had my laptop with my cat card reader, so I was able to get on CMSID and all that. Um, and it was nothing but marine billets. Um, and uh, I just I, I just I wanted to go to a ship. That's what I wanted to do. So I I called my detailer and I was like, I will leave today if you can get me on a ship in Mayport. Um, and she was like, done. And I had she didn't tell me what ship or anything. Um, and then I literally had order. I got back. We got back to work the next week. Like you know, they lifted the evacuation order and all that. And mm -hmm. uh, Sandy, the career counselor, came to my office and, and gave me my hard copy orders. Like literally less than a week after I told my detailer, I had hard copy orders. Um, <laughs> and they said, uh, you know, um, pre-commissioning detachment, uh, USS Paul Ignatius, uh, Norfolk. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I was like, I thought, <laughs> uh, and uh, they had me PCSing in January, so six months early. Um. And, uh, but it was only, you know, three months away from when I got my orders. So I was like, you know, like I just finished building a house, like, like this isn't a lot of time. Like, um, I got to transfer to like Virginia, like what the hell? So I called her and I was like, what happened to Mayport? <laughs> and, um, she was, uh, she was like, it's a, it's a pre-commissioning unit. Uh, the ship's being built in Mississippi. And I was like, then why the hell am I going to Norfolk? Like this is making like no sense. <laughs> um, so ultimately what what's happening is we're here for a little bit because um, a, a lot of the uh, there's a lot of new technology on, on our ship because it's a new destroyer um, and a lot of yeah. the, a lot of those schools uh, for those um, systems are here in Norfolk so they they send they sent a lot of the crew here so they could get all the training and then in a couple months we're going down to Mississippi to take the ship over 
and then you know do sea trials and, and then we're going to end up uh, in mayport um you know sometime next year so I, I i kind of got my wish but but i got out of king's bay six months early which was kind of nice yeah yes anything out of there you know <laughs> not to bash on king's bay people but you know it's not for everybody it's not um you know and uh i mean i know for you i mean like you know you having already spent time on a submarine you already know that that life and so the last thing you probably ever wanted to do is be put back into a submarine command you know as a corpsman at a, at a clinic right yeah, I, I really I, – I couldn't wait to get to shore duty and, like, sit behind a desk and get to come home every night and not have to worry about duty and all that. And, like, after, like, six months of being there, I was just – I was just so done. It's weird. <laughs> yeah, it was boring, you know, yeah. like you. Like, you're used to, like, a lot faster of a lifestyle. And, like, you know, when all of a sudden, like, you aren't doing that anymore and you're not being challenged, you're just like – well then, what's my what is my existence like? What do I what am I waking up to every day? Like what right. what am I supposed to be doing? And you know, there's only so much you can get at a clinic as far as being challenged. I mean, it's pretty mundane work, you know. Um, and yeah, yeah, you find out real soon like if that's the lifestyle you're meant for. Some people right. are really good at doing that day in and day out, and a lot of us who are used to that more like underway or de forward deployed kind of lifestyle, like you're used to. Sh popping you know like you're, you're right. like all right what's the next thing what are we doing what are we doing what are we doing and, and you know you feel like you have a little bit more of a purpose in your life right and, and it's more uh you can kind of spread your wings a little bit more too which like at the clinic you're you're in whatever yeah. whatever department you're in and that's what you do every single day um but like here on the ship yeah. um uh, you know i i mean I, I really can't speak for how it is on your side of the fence because you know i've never uh, i've never experienced it but um, on the ship, like, there's a lot more to do than just, you know, being a, a corpsman that you're responsible for. Um, like, I need... Yeah, uh, you can get all kinds of quals and all that stuff. Right, like, I'm, um, I have to be part of the VBSS team, which are, like, the, uh, the visit board search and seas. The little rib boats that we drop off the destroyer. That's right. Um, like yep. They do, like, a lot of anti-piracy and stuff like that. Uh, so I have to go through, like, a bunch of schools for that. Um, I get, you know, entered into the realm of maintenance again, like being work center soup and doing the 3M program and all that. Um, so mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of, it's just, it's always something different and it kind of keeps you going instead of doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's the thing. You want to be challenged when you come to work. You want to like, you know, have that sense of purpose and, you know, and, and you know belonging and it's like you know when when you're not being challenged anymore and it was like uh you know one of my uh this on my wife's side is a cousin you know this uh this uh young young guy just joined up and became uh, is in the air force and he's uh working as a uh, crew chief with the uh, f-35 um you know fighter and i told him the day i was like you know like a very wise man told me a very long time ago um he's like you know the day that you're the smartest person in the room is the day that you're in the wrong room. So, you know, I've always taken that with that, and it's like, you know, if you're no longer challenging yourself to where you are no longer seeking to learn things, and you're at a standing point in your life, and you and you are the one who is now the smartest person in your room, it's time for you to move rooms because it means you need to challenge yourself again. Um, and that's what I've continued to try to do in my career is always try to put myself out there to be in new positions where I am now challenged to learn new things and not get stagnant where I'm at. That's awesome. And I definitely feel like the 
community you're at now, it's probably uh, pr- pr- pretty easy to challenge yourself. <laughs> oh, yes. So many different ways. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, man. I mean, we've been going for uh, for like two hours and 15 minutes. It hasn't even felt like that. Yeah. <laughs> no, man. It's, like, it's crazy, dude. It's been so much fun. I know that there's so many other things we could probably talk about, but... Hey, you know, this means there's just more room for more podcasts. Exactly. I was gonna, like, I, I feel like we definitely could have spent probably just two hours on like Ramadi and Fallujah by by themselves. I'm sure. Um, but I uh, yeah, I really uh, I appreciate. I mean, um, I know you said this is your day off, so I appreciate you spending your day off a couple hours with me. Um, and I hope that uh, um, you know, you you got something out of this. Like I said, I I really want to use this podcast to uh to just document those stories that, you know, may have not ever made it out there. Um, and kind of doing my small part. So I appreciate you sharing your stories. Um, I know, you know, sometimes it's kind of hard for, for people that, that have gone through stuff like that. Um, so I, I, I do appreciate that. Um, and honestly, I wish I knew half of this stuff when I worked with you, uh, cause I probably would have picked your brain a lot more. <laughs> um, it's <laughs> cool, man. But, uh, it's, um, it's actually fun. It's a good. It's a good medium. It's a good uh, platform. Uh, a lot of guys actually, you know, come from my background. Um, you hear a lot of guys that are like, oh, no, I never want to talk about this stuff. You know, a lot of us actually do like to talk about this stuff. It's therapy for us. It's a way for us to just remember and to never forget. You know, because you know, with a lot of those um, events that happen, you know, you lose a lot of brothers, and it's when you stop talking about your brothers and what you went through with them that you forget and you never want to forget you know you always want to remember and always you know remember who you live for every day remember who you wake for wake up for every day and continue to push for every day um and that's that's kind of my therapy you know like i'm we'll never get those people back but as long as i know i'm pushing forward every day and trying to do my best to live in in their honor and to carry it on um then it's good, and being able to talk about it and remember those things, even if some of them weren't fun or good, you know, you know why you're doing it every day, you know, and that's the biggest thing for me is just trying to make sure that I'm able to pass on things and to help mentor other corpsmen to make sure that when they're in that position that they're always going to do the best for their, their Marines, their sailors, you know, whoever they're with, and be able to be the person they can count on, Um and that's kind of like why I wanted to be in IDC in the first place is to be able to be in that position to where I can now mentor young junior corpsmen to go on and truly live up to who we are as as a rating. Um, we are the most decorated corps in the military. So, you know, that's that's a lot to live up to. Well, um, again, I, I just want to say uh, thank you. Um, thank you for taking your time. Thank you for uh, talking to me. Um, thank you for your service. Obviously, I mean, uh, I, I was in high school at college parties while while you were in Ramadi and Fallujah, um, you know. So and and at that time, I wasn't even thinking about what was going on around the world. Um, so to kind of think back at that, you know, I'm playing beer pong in high school, and and I got guys like you in in the middle of a, a war zone in a city. Um, it's just uh, I appreciate it a lot more now. Um, and uh just thank you for that um thank you for doing that um on you know uh, i feel like i be i talk i speak on behalf of you know the country when i say thank you for that um 
And uh, again, I just really appreciate the, you know you taking out the time and, and, and sharing all that with me. Yeah, brother, I appreciate you. Thank you for everything. Um, and I, I really appreciate what you're doing with this. I hope it continues to grow and you can get more guys on to tell their stories about what, what, what happened and what they went through. Yeah, that's that's definitely the mission. Um, well, hey, man, you uh, you go enjoy your day off. Uh, obviously, you deserve it. And, um, you know, uh, we'll definitely talk soon. And, and we'll probably most definitely have, like, a part two to this without a doubt. <laughs> <laughs> All right, dude. Take it easy, brother. All right, man, have a good one.